0: Hey, everybody. We've got a special episode for you today. This is what I guess you could call our pilot episode. Recorded before our Starcade series began, this episode was our trial run to see how our show could work and just get used to the idea of recording a wrestling themed podcast. I would not then exactly call it polished, but I think it's still a fun show, and I hope that it's one that you'll enjoy. Particularly since, in addition to being a look back at our beginnings, it's a look back at the beginnings of one of our favorite wrestlers, the man called Sting, facing his first big match against world heavyweight champion Ric Flair in the early days of perhaps WCW's most famous rivalry, at the first ever Clash of the Champions. So, for technically the very first time, let's go to the ring! Hello everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring. I'm Bob Moore, and I'm joined by Alec Pritchin and John Mullins. Here we'll take a look back at WCW's big events, series by series, to see what ties each series of shows together, and what sets individual shows apart. In the process, we'll see what makes WCW (laughs) such a memorable company, even 17 years after it folded. Most of our time will be spent on WCW's pay-per-views, But today, we're taking a look at something a little different, the first-ever Clash of the Champions, run by a pre-WCW, Jim Crockett Promotions. The Clash of the Champions was first created to go head-to-head with WWF's WrestleMania IV as payback for the WWF's airing of the first Survivor Series against Starrcade 1987 and the first Royal Rumble against Jim Crockett Promotions' Bunkhouse Stampede earlier in 1988. It's kind of amazing to think that two of the greatest WWF match designs, the Survivor Series and the Royal Rumble, both originated in this period as attempts to sabotage a Jim Crockett promotion show. The WWF played particularly rough with the Survivor Series incident, delivering an ultimatum to pay-per-view providers that any of them who chose to host Starrcade that night wouldn't get future WWF events, a strategy that proved so successful that Starrcade was moved to December in future years to avoid further pay-per-view conflicts. Jim Crockett Promotions chose to create the first clash as an attempt to get some payback, airing a free TV show with special matches, including the first big shot at the big time for the man who would come to be one of their greatest success stories, the man called Sting, against the WWF's largest pay-per-view of the year in hopes of drawing away some fans. Continuing through the years, though with less focus on scheduling conflicts, there are 35 different clashes across the run of Jim Crockett Promotions and WCW, but we won't be covering all of them. The WSW pay per views are our main focus. There are some, however, that are particularly noteworthy, or that match up well with the theme or other series that we're doing. So while we're not doing Clash of the Champions as a series, we will be looking at some of the individual episodes from time to time, starting today with the first ever Clash of the Champions.
1: Now, according to like their size, like what is their viewership
0: compared you know, comparatively? I'm not sure on the full details of it, but I think they're they're honestly reasonably equivalent at this point I in terms so. of size. Um, they, they are definitely competitors. Vince went national, uh, Vince of the WWF went national earlier and a little bit easier and more successfully. But mm-hmm. Jim Crockett Promotions is trying to do the same thing. The Starcade that I mentioned that the WWF scheduled against was their first attempt at doing pay-per-view. The WWF had recently moved into as well they're really kind of both kind of pushing themselves national and trying to get as big an audience as they can
2: when all these shows started Starcade, wrestlemania all that they were closed circuit viewings Mm -hmm. so the way we do it now where they do some theatrical event they replay an old movie and you go to theater that's what wrestlemania was we're going from closed circuit to pay-per-view where you spend something like 30 40 dollars probably To buy this show as a big event for your family, friends, and all that for a party. Whereas this show, this is just on TBS. Yeah. This is a channel you just watch all the time anyways. Mm -hmm. And hey, this company I'm aware of, suddenly they're on free. I should check this out. That's the appeal of the show.
0: Yeah, they're scheduling a really, really big free show on the same night as the WWF's really, really big paid show. The first Clash of the Champions was held on March 27th, 1988, at the Greensboro Coliseum in Greensboro, North Carolina, in front of 6,000 fans. It drew a TV rating of 5.8, covering about 2,561,000 homes. The main event, however, drew a 7.1 and was seen by 3,138,000, with the final 15 minutes actually going even higher for a total of about 3,447,000 people. So, Jim Crockett Promotions definitely got a lot of eyes that night. As for whether that hurt WrestleMania 4, well, the pay per view buys outdid the prior year's WrestleMania 3, with 485,000 for 4 compared to 400,000 for 3. Closed circuit attendance was down, though, 175,000 for 4 compared to 441,000 for 3. I'm not sure if that's more a result of the Clash of the Champions airing against it or just that closed circuit is kind of in decline at this point
2: it's hard to say really yeah
0: so it's hard to say and I am not a TV analyst so I could be dead wrong but I kind of look at this the same way that we look at uh, Nitro and Raw later in WCW's run where I think it's more that Jim Crockett promotions attracted their own large audience for an exciting show Mm -hmm. rather than necessarily pulling people away from the WWF in the grand scheme of things and that you see repeat in the Monday Night War's era to some extent with raw versus nitro they don't so much cannibalize each other's audiences as actually just grow the business because both are on a hot streak right mm-hmm. but how's the show itself well let's go to the ring
3: is sting finally ready to knock rick flair off his throne and become the nwa world heavyweight champion <laughs> Question. With Dusty roads at their side, will the Road Warriors take revenge on the men who brutalized them, Ivan Koloff and the powers of pain? Question. Are wrestling's new breed of young gladiators equipped with what it takes to be victorious on a day when anything goes? There are so many questions, and the time has finally come to find out the answers. Now, Superstation TBS presents Clash of the Champion.
0: So we open with a video package that briefly goes over the Sting versus Flair, Dusty and Road Warriors, and Lex and Wyndham storylines. It's uh, hilariously highlighted by question marks flying by like they're the old Starship Enterprise or something. It does end on a terrific opening highlighting the various championship belts though. That looked really cool, I thought. It did. Mm-hmm. That was really neat with all mm-hmm. the belts flying by and it's kind of this is clash of the champions. You know, and that really I think drives home these are these are what it's all about, these these yeah. titles, I thought. It is a little bit funny to see the weird, uh, what is it, Western States Heritage Belt? Yes. Something like that in there. Yeah. WCW has a penchant for all these tiny little titles that you're like, why do you have... This is just overcomplicating things. Extremely, yes. After the video package, Tony Schiavone with Bob Cottle welcome us to the Greensboro Coliseum. Tony throws to Jim Ross, who intros the World TV title match. It is, oddly enough, an amateur rules match with one count counting for a pinfall. Three periods with a rest period in between. We were laughing about this, Al, introing John to old WCW wrestling shows. Yes. With a match that does not in any way resemble any other match in the history of WCW.
2: Not even close. (laughs) How do you oh. win?
0: <laughs> yeah, so you win with a one-count pinfall, which is weird. Do they actually explain at all why this was happening this way?
2: In January of this year, it might be 1988, not this year, this year, the title was won by Mike Rotunda. He's defending it regularly. He's still a bad guy, so he will cheat. He has Rick Steiner with him at all times, and Kevin Sullivan, who is the Games Master. It doesn't quite fit the cleated wrestling theme, given that he's dressed like he's some weird cult leader who skins goats in his basement. But apparently that connects somehow. Yeah, they're the varsity club, but he is like
0: yes. How is that not college? I guess people do play role playing games oftentimes in college, mm-hmm. so maybe that's what it is.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I didn't skin a lot of goats in my basement in yeah. college. I, I can't speak to your college experience.
1: That's Ivy League. Is
2: that okay, <laughs> little skull and bones kind of thing. Yeah, there mm-hmm. you go. Their big go-to move is they would take a coat hanger and wrap it around your neck. So you'd be in the middle where like, your shirt's hanging on. And I think that would hurt, but I don't think it's really deadly. It's just more of like a inconvenience, I would say. Yeah. Not that I want to try it out, but it doesn't seem like it's this deadly thing. So in the forex of build-up to this, we see a video package in the very first show about how they attacked Barry Windham doing this. But that doesn't matter at all. 'Cause everyone is doing something else entirely by the time a Clash comes around. It's just weird that the first thing I see is that. <laughs> on second week, we actually get some storyline set up for this, where the same person who's wrestling tonight, Jimmy Garvin, is also wrestling McIntyre for the title, and they cheat to make sure he doesn't win. And then in week three and four, they don't do anything about this whatsoever. There's literally nothing on the shows I watch that says, "Oh, we're having a collegiate rules match." Because this is our strong point. This is going to work to our advantage or something, something. I was as surprised to see this situation as much anybody else would. (laughs) So, yeah. (laughs) The way these shows work is the big people don't fight each other. Yeah. There's no sting Ric Flair matches on the television shows. How it works is the people you're going to see in these shows fighting each other, they fight random weirdo jobber guys.
0: In wrestling, um, to when you lose the match, it's called doing the job. Yes, so
2: they're really pay paid to do the job. That's Are the these term like "local jobber. talent." Yes, or? yeah, very much so.
0: For a lot of guys, that's the first way they break into wrestling. Kind of, you get into mm-hmm. these shows and do the do the job or role for a little bit, and then oh, yeah. hopefully get noticed. And
2: yeah, you watch late eighties, early nineties WWF even. You can see Mick Foley doing it. The Hardy Boys do it a lot as well. You yeah. see the network.
1: I think I actually went to a show, and that's when they introduced the Hardy Boys for the first time. Oh,
2: really? That's cool. That's cool. Because they're not big stars, their names alternate between being really boring-sounding and overly workshopped, (laughs) where I can see one person think of a good name, and then five more people will add their own thing, and it just gets kind of confusing. The first first one to show in here, he's in a tag match against, I believe it's Rick Steiner and Kevin Sullivan. One of the people they wrestle is the Italian Stallion. (laughs) (laughs) He is billed as the Italian Stallion. And that's all you need to know. Okay.
0: So our first match then is Mike Rotunda versus Jimmy Garvin in a college rules match or amateur rules match. One count for a pinfall, three periods with a rest period in between for the television title. Jimmy Garvin was in the ring starting out. He wears some amazing, like, sparkly pants. But for some reason, very, very quickly stripped down to white trunks, Mm. which had the side effect to me of making it look like he was stripping down to his underwear, which (laughs) wasn't the best look. I'm not quite sure why he doesn't just wear the sparkly pants for the match. It's not like people don't wear those to wrestle in. That's true. You can get a sequin in the eye. Uh, That could be very hazardous. Mm -hmm. The foreign object. Yeah, there you go. He's accompanied by his valet, Precious. Rotunda comes out to some college fight song music accompanied by Kevin Sullivan, who, as you mentioned earlier, Al looks more like he should be summoning elder, eldritch horrors in a basement than, yes. you know, at college. Mm-hmm. I guess it's Miskatonic University. There you
2: go. <laughs> and the wrestling team, yeah.
0: Mike Rotunda is announced as Mike Rotundo, but the graphic says Rotunda. They got it half right. I do want to take a moment before we start to highlight the match cards that they use to intro each of the matches, with, uh, again, like the title belt off to the side it's very eighties, but I mm-hmm. think it, it looks, it looks cool again. It's kind of an emphasis of, Oh, this match is actually really important. We've got this, we've got this really big image reminding us of the title belt. It looks very, uh, sports show, which I think is a strength of WCW during this period to me.
1: I kept on waiting for lightning bolts to like strike everything while, what it showed up.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, they have that all the time during like the intro too with the, that music. There's the, thunder sound effects, and the the logo has the thunderbolt in it, too. So, yeah, I can see that. (laughs) Jim Ross declares the one-count stip as a very startling stipulation. I guess we're all kind of inclined to agree, since they said nothing about it in any of the shows leading up to it.
2: Surprise the hell out of me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The match starts out looking like it'll feature a focus on amateur grappling, but very quickly goes to fisticuffs and standard pro wrestling moves with clotheslines and elbow strikes later in the first round. John, you did wrestling in high school, right? Yes. Yeah, were you allowed to punch people in the face?
1: No, the, the, as long as the ref doesn't see it. No, <laughs> no, no. you weren't. Uh, the closest thing you can do was a cross face, but you had to put your hand up against their face before applying pressure.
0: Ah, uh, okay. Huh. That's, that's good to know. Good to know, cool. The first round does end with some mat work, as Rotunda can't quite manage to put Garvin away and Rotunda gets a cheap shot in between rounds. Jim Ross confirms to us, by the way, that the rest period is indeed for resting, not for fighting.
2: I wasn't sure on that, but he got that out for me.
0: (laughs) Rotunda takes advantage at the start of the second round off of his cheap shot, but Garvin recovers, only for Sullivan to try to interfere. Precious tries to stop him, but Sullivan chases her, prompting Garvin to go after him, which lets Rotunda roll him up for the one-count pin. That's where it ends. You Yeah. You set it up as we're going to have one-count pins, three three rounds, and it's like a few seconds really into the second round where it uh, closes up.
2: That's my only problem with a match is that, well, the action you get is good, but there's too much going on just overall. Because, I mean, you have this collegiate rules thing, you have one-counts. And on top of that, you have all this interference at the end. She went in with the stick, and all this stuff happens. The one-count thing really doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. This kind of thing where the good guy wrestler has to distract us to help somebody, and it's grabbed him over a pin, happens all the time. Yeah. And the difference is they do a full three-count versus a one-count.
0: Yeah. You don't need the stip to add anything in particular to this match, and it's like... It'd be one thing if they stuck to the entirely amateur wrestling style the whole way through. I was kind of hoping that would be the case, because I'd be like, I could... John, we could ask you all about this and be like, hey, how close were they sticking to the amateur rules? But I kind of think... they did
1: line up. They didn't line (laughs) up to, like, you know, reset and everything. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah.
0: So there's some stuff, but I can kind of tell, like, I'm pretty sure there's no, like, clotheslines, elbow strikes... You know, punches. They don't spend a lot of time doing any kind of like mat work, other than the end of the first round. So it's like this mm-hmm. isn't different than a normal pro wrestling match, really.
1: Maybe right. maybe they're just gauging how you know how the audience was responding. And it, at some point, it looks like they were losing them. But let's do the one count. Skip that.
0: Yeah, maybe it's possible. It does happen. That does happen. So following the match, uh, Garvin's all ticked off at losing and hits a brainbuster, which. Doesn't, if I'm being perfectly honest, look anything like a brain buster. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rotunda's head comes nowhere near the mat, but does look like it connects pretty solidly with Garvin's own chest, which didn't look particularly pleasant. It might have just been a bad camera angle, though. Sullivan and Rick Steiner interfere, but Precious gets the drop on Steiner with a very, very large piece of lumber. Then basically garrots Kevin Sullivan with a coat hanger, which yes. you told me, that. so that's what they... The Varsity club has been doing to people, basically. Yeah,
2: they would attacked people with the coat hanger before. So that's oh, this. Uh, this is the point where I was most
1: excited. As soon as the lumber showed up, I knew it was going to get serious. <laughs> <laughs> sure. John
0: can't wait for the hardcore matches, right? <laughs> right. Nope. Yeah. Either. Either this wouldn't do any damage, or this would do really, really serious damage that should probably not be something that's being done as a sporting event, but it wouldn't be the first time and won't be the last time in wrestling that you see something like that happen. Right. Sullivan and company recover and end up going after Precious, but Garvin and Precious get away. So, yeah, like we said, it's a very strange match. It's set up to be like a collegiate wrestling match with a system of rounds and only a single count for pins, but... The match progresses like your average pro-wrestling match, except for the break between rounds for Rotund to get a cheap shot in on Garvin. It was strange and, if I'm honest, for me, not that interesting. Mm -hmm. Though it was, decent, like you said, decently enough performed. The action's fine. There's nothing wrong with what they're doing. It's just confusing. Uh, The ending was decent enough for me, uh, though the let's choke Kevin Sullivan with a coat hanger thing was a bit more than I was expecting to see.
2: (laughs) I do find it a little funny that when she comes out at the end, she runs in with the stick... It's one guy, and then just drops it. Like you might still need that. There's yeah. more than one person there.
0: But I, I didn't even see where the stick came from. I didn't see anyone bring it out. It kind of got thrown in the ring. Yeah. So I was I was trying to figure out like who who brought that here, knowing full well that hacksaw Jim Duggan is not in this company yet. It's true, <laughs> right?
1: Well, that's what I thought it was. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I knew that that he would show up at some point. So that's sort of his signature thing,
0: isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think it is. he. I think he finally comes in in, like,
2: 1994.
3: Yes. Dr. Death, Steve Williams. Steve, a tremendously successful tour in Japan. But I know you had to have heard about about Dusty Rhodes and that incident with Dusty. Well, Bobby,
4: I did have a great tour in Japan. I've been away for a while. I hear a little things going on. It's like a war. You know, go on with your bad self, Dusty Rhodes. I don't blame you. Dusty Rhodes, Magnum TA, good friends of mine. Let me tell you something, Dusty. Whatever you did and what, how you did it was so fine to me. And another thing. Today we have the big match, Ric Flair and Sting. You know my predictions right now? I hope Sting wins the match. But it doesn't matter because I'm putting my, my name on the dotted line for the challenger of the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. Look at Electricity's in the air. Excitement's in the air. As you can see it in Greensboro. Let me tell you, Dr. Death's back. And I'm gonna be like a bullet. And there ain't a Superman in the NWA who's gonna stop me. I'm coming hard, I'm feeling good, and I'm as clean as I look. Because I've been in that, I've been in that weight room pumping that iron, running, doing what it takes to be a champion. As you know, Bob, I am a true champion. And another thing, one more thing. Ric Flair, you've been walking walking down that gold, gold carpet. Well, now, Dr. Death's back and he's knocking on the door. Let me tell you, everybody in the world is watching today, and I'm putting my name on that dotted line. Bye bye, take it there. All right, Dr. Death, Steve Williams, and fans will have our match for the United States
3: Tag Team Championship. That'll be coming up next.
0: Bob Coddle introduces Dr. Death, Steve Williams, for an interview. Dr. Death, I've noted, looks rather like Scott Steiner right now, mm-hmm. but uh, is not a particularly good promo.
2: No, not really. <laughs> I
0: enjoyed his enthusiasm. Though. He's definitely enthusiastic. He's definitely enthusiastic. He probably cuts promos similar to how I would cut a promo in wrestling, not quite knowing what you're saying and stumbling over your words. I did love, he tells Dusty to go on with your bad self, and whatever Dusty did with Magnum TA is so fine with him, which, out of context, <laughs> sounds <laughs> sounds interesting. He's a yeah. fan. I liked him also saying he's as clean as he looks, which yeah. we could unpack that statement for hours, I think. Mm-hmm. And that Ric Flair has been run- walking down a gold carpet. I wonder if this is when, if Rick's already doing the walk that aisle lines and he just got it wrong, or if he... Um. It
1: was a gold, gold carpet.
0: Yes. N- n- not one gold. Yeah, it's a super gold carpet. But now Dr. Death is knocking on the door. And I believe at the end there, does he actually say, bye-bye, take care? <laughs> it sounded like, bye-bye, take care.
2: It's something like that, for sure, yes. That
0: is not something a man named Dr. Death should ever say. <laughs> Dr. Death here, I think, just comes off as really nice, enthusiastic guy. It's it's not a total disaster of a promo, because I do actually like him after this promo. Sure. But his name is Dr. Death. <laughs> this does not sound like Dr. Death. This sounds like this this really nice kind of athletic guy that goes jogging by your house and says hello in the morning. Yeah. You know?
1: It was lacking a certain Kevorkian-esque uh,
0: quality. <laughs> yes, exactly.
2: Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> He's like your, your dad's friend who, they, he, you know, goes out for a drink every couple of months. You know, we always see each other, let's go for a drink and hang out. That's <laughs> Dr. Death, the man known for dropping Japanese people on their heads.
0: Yes. Uh, we, we should put in a plug for the team name that I'm not sure ever fully shows up on WCW programming, but he has one half of the best team name ever in professional wrestling, the Miracle Violence Connection. Yeah. That's just glorious. Mm-hmm. Uh, next up, we have the Midnight Express, Bobby Eaton and Stan Lane, versus the Fantastics, Bobby Fulton and Tommy Rogers. There's a there's a Bobby on both teams. Didn't notice that, actually. It's a tag match for the Midnight Express's NWA-US tag team titles, because WSW has two different tag team titles at this point, because they need them.
2: Know they have three.
0: That's right, three, because of the six-man tag as well.
2: We'll get to that later, yeah.
0: With their names and their tag teams, it sounds more like a Battle of the Bands. It
2: does. <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually,
0: yeah. It does. The Midnight Express's normal rivals are the Rock and Roll Express, which sounds even more like a Battle of the Bands. It does, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the Fantastics are kind of filling in as a substitute.
2: They play a video on, I believe it's the second week of shows, from a live event where the Fantastics won a non-title match, thus getting this title match. On the third week of shows... I believe it's the Fantastics have a match against a bunch of jobbers, and they win, and that big fight breaks out in the area. Jim Crandetta is like, throwing chairs small camera, they're, like, punching each other. It's where you see how weird the set is. It's this open TV studio, where there's, a little, like, a little house backdrop while the interviews are done in front of, and then there's a ring, like, ten feet away. So people are, like, walking to and from these places. Normally, you don't see the things in the same shots. You see the interview section, or you see the ring. You never see them connected. But when it gets chaotic, they go to this sort of middle camera angle where you see all of it at once. And you realize it's just confusing open studio layout with a ring and people sort of standing there like they don't see a ring 10 feet to their right. <laughs> <laughs> and the fourth big of shows, they both wrestle separate jobber matches, but have no direct interaction, which is weird considering that, again, they're in this tiny building. you think they would pass each other, but apparently they didn't. Yeah. They both get promo and they both play matches, but yeah, basically they won a match against the champion, so they get to have a title match. Okay. I do have a few drivers of note, real quick, from this. All right. We have Gene ligan Okay. Who I assume is a mix of a liar and a lion. because that makes <laughs> sense? We have my favorite, which is Big Bear Collie. <laughs> big
0: Bear, Big Bear Collie.
2: Big Bear Collie. <laughs> yes. Is he big? He's fairly big. Oh, okay. He's a large, blonde-haired guy. And actually, weirdly enough, on the fourth biggest show, one of the jobbers is Kendall Wyndham, who is Barry Wyndham's brother. And there's, like, no mention that his brother's is a random jobber at this point. It's very odd.
0: Oh, that's where, And he's actually called Kendall Wyndham? Yes. Yeah. That's that's <laughs> strange. You'd think they'd mention that. It's, I guess maybe worried about devaluing Barry by having his relationship to a, bro- to a jobber mentioned. But yeah, you'd it's... think they'd rename him for a bit then.
2: Yeah, I don't. I don't it's quite a good get name. it. No, it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just weird that Barry Wyndham's a big star and his brother is nobody, and they don't try to disguise that anyway. Yeah, or we mentioned it, just kind of there in the ether, You're supposed to not recognize that. I guess very strange.
0: So the match graphic for Midnight Express versus the Fantastics features Stan Lane of the Midnight Express in some wonderful '80s sunglasses. Uh, the manager of the Midnight's. Jim Cornette does the intros for the Midnights, who come out in some rather strange black and glittery gold. I don't know, I guess I call them togas?
2: Kind of, yeah. They're like... Um, There's a
0: long one and a short one. Right, right, right,
2: right. Yeah, they're like jacket coat with no, no sleeves on them. Yeah. Weird.
0: Yeah, it looks kind of weird, but also, I guess, interesting. Gives them a, a look, yeah. anyway. Uh, the Fantastics come out, but they didn't actually get announced in any sort of audible fashion which yeah. was a bit weird, but the crowd at least seemed to know who they were. A brawl erupts before the match proper can begin, with the Fantastics getting the better of the Midnights for the most part. The Midnights take control as the match starts, however, with Lane and Eaton isolating Rogers and keeping solid control. Rogers doesn't make many comebacks, but never quite stops trying to fight back. Fulton keeps trying to protect his buddy, but that just distracts the referee and lets the Midnights cheat, most notably by taking Rogers outside and bulldogging him down to a table. We're told the table will later be used for the judges in the Flair versus Sting match, so is this one of the rare times we actually find out why there's a spare table lying around?
2: It's if, probably one of a few times, yeah. <laughs> I can't
1: think of too many cases where it's explained. If they broke it, would there not be any
0: judges? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe not.
2: I mean, we wouldn't want anything to devalue the judges that are very important to this show. <laughs> yeah. But they course. wouldn't want to risk that at all.
0: <laughs> yeah, they're definitely an important part of things, and we won't uh, screw anything up with judges involving later.
2: No, never.
0: Eventually, Rogers does make the tag, but the referee doesn't see it and stops Fulton, who chucks him over the top rope and gets in anyway. I get pushing the ref out of the way, but he actually, like, bodily hurls the man over the top rope.
2: I have a theory on that, actually. Yeah. Okay. So, with NWA and later WCW, there's a bunch of rules that are very, very strict and definitely never stretched or broken. One is that if you touch the ref, you're disqualified. Whether you intentionally punch him, throw him, whatever do you do. That's his qualification. Another thing is throwing someone at to the top rope to the outside is disqualification. qualification. Yeah. So, maybe he thought, well, okay, if I touch the ref, I'm disqualified. And if I throw someone over the ropes, I'm disqualified. But if I throw the ref over the ropes... That evens out.
0: So so you're telling me that his philosophy is that, in fact, two wrongs do make a right.
2: Yes. Yeah,
0: double negative. <laughs>
2: exactly, yeah. It's a, it's a wash.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm not not sure that that's the smartest philosophy, but I, I guess... Two it, strikes, you're in. <laughs>
2: <laughs> exactly.
0: There you go. Fulton and Rogers hit the rocket launcher for the pin by a second ref, but the first ref comes back in and disqualifies them handing the belts back to the Midnights.
2: I do have a question on that. So, did the first, the second ref, rather, did he not see that?
0: <laughs> you think so. <laughs> I mean, I know Randy Anderson is kind of a small guy, but it doesn't seem that hard to see a flying referee
2: is it like with the robots where they keep them in like little things, and you press the button to activate them when you need them? So he's just in a tube somewhere, not watching the match. <laughs> you go, oh, the ref's down. Activate Randy Anderson. He wakes up. I will go he walk does, out, fall. He does
0: know he's the spare one, right? <laughs> yeah, Yeah, it's like, you're being sent out here clearly because something happened. Otherwise, Randy Anderson is the ref for the match, and Tommy Young, you don't need to come to ringside. So, wouldn't you think naturally, hey, I wonder what happened here, but you see this all the time in wrestling, but with this case, it's particularly egregious that it's like, he's hurled bodily over the top rope.
2: Well, it's like a Westworld thing. They only program so much information, just what they need to know.
0: Oh, okay. It's definitely not at all important for them to know that the referee was chucked over the top rope.
2: You know, it's possible he just didn't like the other ref.
0: That's possible. That's possible. You're
2: like, you know what? He got what he's coming. I'm going to give this title these guys for finally giving that guy what he deserves. <laughs> Street justice.
0: There you go. So it breaks down into another brawl, and Cornette nails people left and right with his racket, including, hilariously enough, Randy Anderson, the ref who ruled in his favor. Kind of ungrateful. Yeah. They take turns whipping Fulton with Cornette's leather belt until Rogers rescues him with a chair. JR tells us that throwing the ref over the top rope is a disqualification in anybody's book. That is rather less debatable than some of WCW's other disqualification rules, especially their other over the top rope throw disqualification we mentioned earlier. Yes. I thought it was a pretty good match, honestly. Some weird moments like the hurl the ref over the top rope bit, but there's, there's a lot of energy here.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's two things, two approaches to me with this. There's another tag match we have later, we haven't talked about yet. Yeah. They both do variations of this formula what it comes down to me though is that this is a very in both good and bad ways a very extreme version of this mm-hmm. where once the heels take charge like a minute or two in they control all of the match up until the very end when all this stuff happens yeah whereas it's usually there's a little more balanced or like when you see the later match they'll take control then a section then will be like section two of the match where now the faces are back in charge and something else will happen and there's an even back and forth flow this is almost an attempt to see how much they can sort of rile the crowd up for the big moment. And to yeah. be fair, it does get a good reaction. Yeah. So I can't fault them on that.
0: Yeah, really, Rogers doesn't get a lot of offense at all. No. And he doesn't get many hope spots. That's he true. He just doesn't ever fully go down. Very one-sided match once it gets to the actual match proper. The Fantastics offense is mainly in that, uh, that opening brawl. Yes, but there's not much in the match itself.
1: I was just transfixed the whole time looking at the back of that guy's
0: uh, jacket. Oh, cornet's jacket? Yeah, yeah, yeah. With the the, the like the ping pong. Uh, <laughs> I know the, it's rackets. The, but... the tennis racket coat of arms. Yes, that's <laughs> just like yeah, that's amazing.
2: <laughs> he has a pretty amusing bit of commentary. I think it's the second or third show. He, they have a match the next press does, and he just goes on commentary the whole time because their free table is like three feet from where you're standing earlier, so might as well. And he talks about how he wears, like, a yellow, he was, like, yellow and red and green and, like, blue and purple all at once. And he explains that that's all the, the rage in Europe. And he, that the other commentator, just not in on fashion. <laughs> and, you know, he's so convinced, and I almost believe him.
0: Yeah, almost. Oh, yeah. Overall, the match was executed well. Yes. It, it just is, like you said, kind of a, slightly strange variant on the normal tag formula mm-hmm. without a lot of comebacks, really. So
1: instead of doing like a volley back and forth, you know, it would build up on both sides so if people are cheering for one or the other, they just basically snatch defeat out of the jaws of victory kind of thing at the end? Yeah. Basically.
0: They, they do a good job building for it, and like Al said, it, it does get one heck of a reaction from the crowd when Absolutely. you finally have the appearance of that tag, but... Mm-hmm. It's, it feels a little bit, uh, just a little bit off for me that it doesn't feel like Rogers gets in enough of kind of a hope spot where he's just kind of getting his butt kicked the entire time. But it it, it still works. Even though it's a bit of an odd idea for the screw job finish, it's it's done well. Mm-hmm. Like, the timing on it is, is quite good. Uh, everybody's where they need to be. All the parts of it work right. Sure. It's just where do you get the idea of I'm going to hurl the ref over the top rope of all the things for the good guy to decide to do? <laughs> they also had a few really, really wide shots in the match where it was kind of hard to tell exactly who was in the ring or what was going on, but it wasn't too many. It was, it was fairly brief.
2: Yeah. So in May, I believe it's another Clash of the Champions show. The Fantastics actually do win the titles. They lose them in July. <laughs> so they hold them from May to July. The Midnight Express wins the World Tag Team Championships, which we'll see later in the show, in September, while still holding the U.S. Tag Team Championships. So the titles then stripped from them, because they can only hold one set of tag titles. So that creates a vacancy, which of course is filled via tournament, because WCW loves tournaments.
0: Oh, God.
2: So, good news, good news. Smetastics win the titles again. They finally get the titles back. And they hold him for 19 days. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's like we're in the Attitude Era here with the short title reigns. Good gosh. Yep. We go to Bob Cottle, who notifies us that they're wrapping the ring in barbed wire, which is naturally a great time to segue into talking about the new Leave it to Beaver show, and throw to Ken Osmond, who plays Eddie Haskell, who talks to Jim Cornette.
3: Talking about the big crowd, a number of celebrities also here. A lot of us remember the old Leave It to Beaver television program. Well, the new Leave It to Beaver stars Eddie Haskell. And we'd like right now for all of you folks to meet Eddie Haskell. Hi. I'm Ken
5: Osmond of the new Leave it to Beaver, and I'm inside the Greensboro Coliseum awaiting a man who I admire a great deal and who stands to inherit a great deal of money, Mr. James hey, Cornett. but Osmond, how you doing? Man? All Good right. to see you. You gonna stick around, huh? Yeah, hey, listen, that's a fine-looking tennis racket you have well, there. Well, thank you. Hey, you know I fancy myself as quite a tennis player. Well, Letterman at Mayfield, you should be. Hey, your mom has tennis courts up at her mansion, right? Well, yeah. Why don't I come up with you and we'll play a round of tennis? Well, I don't, she's got time to put the ashtrays up, but promise she'll stay away from the silverware? James, you wound me. You're listening to the babblings of a senile old bat. Hey, let me tell you, she may be getting up there, but she's still loaded, so Oh, listen, what I really wanted to talk to you about were those two finely honed wrestling (laughs) guys. The Midnight Express, beautiful Bobby and Sweet Stan, twin sons of different mothers, the greatest tag team in the world today. You gotta meet them. Oh, that's great. Hey, listen, (laughs) back to your mom's mansion. Okay. Do You think that she could bring a blender out to the jacuzzi? I guess she could, but you know something? She always told me when I was growing up, that Haskell boy, he has such fine manners. I want you to be just like him, and a lot of people say I am. I admire your mom. She has such... Fine taste.
0: <laughs> Innuendo? <laughs> so okay, there's a lot to unpack there. Um number one, Bob coddle throws to Eddie Haskell.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: We proceed to find that it is actually an interview conducted by Ken Osmond, who plays Eddie Haskell. So he's not in character, except that then Junk Cornette comes in and they spend the rest of the time acting like he is in fact in character as Eddie Haskell. <laughs> Discuss.
2: <laughs> I want to blame Ventarusa, but I know I can't. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's a little early Not for yet. that. There's some drug use in that conversation. I, I, I don't know.
2: <laughs> I would also note something else real quickly, which is that so this is March nineteen eighty eight the show was airing. The was it what is the actual show called? Like, I think Stick it's it called Be- Still the Beaver. Still okay Whatever it call whatever it's called. It debuted in 1986. Yeah. or from 1986 to 1989, according to Wikipedia. So, it's not a new show, even by TBS standards. Yeah,
0: it's, it's just kind of weird that this is even combined with this. But then you combine it with, is he in character or is he not in character? It's funny, too, how little they actually discuss anything related to wrestling in the interview. Mm-hmm. There's They talk about the Midnight Express for, like five seconds yeah and then it's all about jim Cornette's mother's house
2: that's mm-hmm. true yeah <laughs> What well, i think it's a little funny too because they're trying to get like what's a, supposed to be a natural conversation yeah in character but then jim Cornette once he's his wrestlers are named he immediately goes into his default i'm announcing that for a match yes. uh description it's like he can't help it that's yeah just how he he talks right. all the time
0: it's another pavlovian oh. response
1: I gotcha. think they gave him a list, each of them a list of words, and they had, like, you need to cross off blender
0: and <laughs> ashtray. <laughs> silverware. Yeah. Gotta get the silverware in there. Jacuzzi.
3: Mm-hmm. All right, fans, right now we want you to meet Al Perez, and this man right here, haven't seen him in a long time, Gary Hart, but Gary, I know whenever you're around, it's two things you're after, money money. And championships, which, of course, I guess championships bring
4: money. The main reason we're here this evening is because we wanted to be a part of this live, a telecast going across the nation. We also want to take this opportunity live before a Capacity House and on national television once again to make a legitimate challenge to the American dream, Dusty Rhodes. You're going to have to take Al Perez serious. You're going to have to put the belt up because like it or not, he's a legitimate contender, and we're here for you, one Dusty Rhodes. Al, why are we here? Make well, you it know, very
6: clear. First of all, I want Dusty Rhodes to know I was watching the monitor
4: when I saw him pull that
6: baseball incident. Dusty, I want you to know when you train as long and as hard as I do for something as prestigious as that US title, it's gonna take a baseball bat to beat me. I want you to know that a gale storm cannot
4: keep me from getting that title. Dusty, be ready, because I'm coming after the U.S. title around let's my waist. Let's just hope that they legalize baseball bats, Rhodes, because the only way you can put this man's shoulders down, one, two, three to the mat, is with a baseball bat. And remember, I invented the dirty deeds, brother.
0: Well, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, So just to be clear... Al Perez says that the only way that Dusty Rhodes could possibly beat him is by using a baseball bat. Yes. Gary Hart then proceeds to generously put his vote in in favor of legalizing baseball bats so that Dusty could use one and uh, and defeat his guy. I guess, yeah. (laughs) I think you pointed out at the time, Al, it would be better if he said something like, so we know we can beat you even at, we can show we can beat you even at your best or even with an advantage, something like that.
2: Yeah, your only chance is if you have these to use. So I want you to have them. So, when we beat you, you'll know you fully lost. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Something like that needed to be a part of that statement. This is not a night for particularly good promos.
1: Had a good rhythm, though, in the beginning. Yeah, true. He he had a nice cadence. He was, like, chugging along and, you know, amping it up.
0: Yeah.
2: Also with knowing this is the promo, cutting promo Dusty Rhodes to defend the U.S. title, which he does have at this point, but he's not being defended. Even though this is the Clash of the Champions.
0: Yeah, true. Is this where you want to talk about the Magnum TA Dusty thing at all, or is that... Um,
2: I can if you'd like, sure. Magnum TA was a wrestler. He was really up on... Coming on the rise. Basically, I thought he would be like the next... You know, Sting is basically now. But unfortunately, he was in a really bad car accident, which meant he could never wrestle again. His health degraded to... Pretty... It's pretty bad now. He's, he's still around, but it's not great. So at this point, it's pretty fresh. We want to keep him around anyways. So there's a bit they play as video package. I'm guessing it happened in the live event. They play as a video package on the fourth week of shows, where he's ringside for a match, which we'll see version of later, with Barry Wyndham and Lex Luger against the Four Horsemen. He brings out a bat to help stop Jada Dillon is interfering. And then there's a whole sequence where... Tully Blanchard grabs the bat during a sunset flip attempt being done to him and basically pulls the bat forward into himself. So then he's hit by a bat and the ref disqualifies the other team, thus making sure they don't lose the titles. Mm -hmm. So then they cut back to live where Magnum TA is in the building, basically saying he has no regrets about it because he's not a manager, he's just a guy and he's really fierce, which brings Tully Blanchard out. Who proceeds to air his grievance of apparently losing an oh, I quit match to him like two years earlier. <laughs> apparently that's like been bugging him constantly. Like, Everywhere I go, people say I quit, I quit. Out of nowhere, Jada Dillon comes behind 9TA and grabs him and they do a bit where he's supposed to be punched and goes down. Which normally you do go down like Jim Cornette did where he does big over the top way. But they don't want to actually throw this guy to the ground violently because he was in a major car accident and can't wrestle. So basically, Team J. Dylan has him in like a hugging him from behind, and they punch and they sort of lightly lay down to the ground while holding him. And they're like, "Oh no, he's down. He's hurt really bad." And which brings Dusty Rhodes running out with a bat, and he starts going to town. Everybody in the area, including hitting, I think it's James Crockett. He hits one of the announcers. The is he's not. He didn't typically attack him, it's just like he, you know, his backswing hits him in and everything that. This all happens on the the day before class of champions and so it's this big event which is going to affect future storylines but has zero impact on the match we are now going to talk about involving dusty Rhodes. yeah so it's really more of a distraction than actual build-up
0: <laughs> francis crockett who probably shouldn't have taken ambium before coming on to broadcast running down the top 10 teams in the jim crockett senior memorial cup I couldn't help but notice uh, that one of the teams is Sting and Ron Garvin, which, considering their hairstyles at the time, had to be, like, super twins. I wonder if Ron Garvin wore the face paint, too. I'm not sure you'd be able to tell them apart. I hope so. <laughs> they both have this, like, wonderful bleach blonde flat top. mm mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, The names st- scrolled up the screen strangely in this sequence, too. They kind of, like pop into existence a quarter of the way up the allotted area for them Mm -hmm. and pop out of existence about a quarter from the end of it, which just looks weird. It's like someone didn't sync that up quite right. They also didn't sync it up particularly well with Francis Crockett's narration, so she'll be saying one name and another name will be on screen or or won't have shown up yet. One other thing that's kind of funny is that we're holding a, a tag team tournament, but later tonight, the number one and number six tag teams are fighting over the title. Correct. Which is just, again, strange.
1: It's a big joke.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Why are they number six in your list if they are literally challenging for the title? <laughs> I guess there's no particular relation to the tournament bracket, but it just feels odd.
2: Yeah. There's a promo on, I think it's this first, second week, Jim Carnett gives out about the fact that, I guess the previous year's tournament, his team still held the same titles they held now, but they weren't ranked number one. Then a different year they held the actual World Tag Championships, and then they also weren't seeded number one. But the the year they held the U.S. Tag Champions, and this year as well, the World tag Champions are seeded number one. Yeah. So he just there's all to do about how they go out of the way to change the rules so they will be number one. <laughs> and of course they're still in number one this year. So yeah. Yep. Kind of right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so next up we have the the title card wonderfully reads. Dusty Rhodes and the Road Warriors Seek Revenge So we have The Road Warriors and Dusty Rhodes Versus The Powers of Pain and Ivan Koloff Managed by Paul Jones In a barbed wire match Dusty's music hits to bring him out At least I'm assuming that was Dusty's music Because it definitely did not sound like the Road Warriors Way too uh, Texan
2: It must be Dusty's, yeah Uh,
0: The crowd goes nuts Mm -hmm. I mean, Dusty and the Road Warriors Very... Very over animal is wearing a hockey mask and dusty has road warrior face paint which is always a touch I like when a unaffiliated guy uh, joins up with an established team you have a tag team that has a specific look and then you have a third guy team up with him and he, he kind of like matches their look a little bit yeah That's always a nice touch you see that sometimes even with um even with single wrestlers that have a particularly notable look like when people team up with sting oftentimes they'll Put on some face paint that's yeah. kind of Sting style or something, too.
2: Or we got the Sting and De- uh, Davey Boy wearing matching jackets. Yes. Sure
0: we yeah, true.
2: Outside of actual wrestling, there was an injury to animals' face and eye area. So they did an angle where the powers of pain attacked them in a gym and attacked their face. That he being, oh no, they're gone. That's because that thing happened. Definitely not something else. It's just how wrestling works. The Road Warriors come back. So you have to beat people up and say really crazy things, extremely crazy things. <laughs> Dusty Rhodes is mentioned very briefly in week two in a promo, but he's covering like three other things. He casually mentions that like, with the Road Warriors they had teamed together, but it's really not a big thing. Then abruptly in week three, they go, "Oh yeah, Dusty's teaming with them against Ivan Koloff, from Hours of the Pain." You're like, "Oh, apparently he is." <laughs> Ivan Kolov has actually not <laughs> seen the first two shows. Ivan Kolov and the Powers of Pain are the current holders of the and he Andrew away six-man tag team championships, which they wear the belt for, but are not mentioned by name the first two shows. that abruptly, oh, here's a six-man tag champion, and here's Ivan Kolov. Like, oh, I don't know where he was the last two weeks. <laughs> it's on vacation, I guess. Not getting injured. There you go. He was planning it out. And then after three weeks of that... None of them appear on the final show. Whatsoever. Huh. Also worth knowing, Dusty is the U.S. champion, and that title is not in the line. However, this is a six-man match, and the six-man tag titles are also not in the line.
0: <laughs> well, okay. you know, it is a barbed wire match.
2: So, technically, this is a clash of the champions in that the six-man champions are facing two guys and the U.S. champion, so I guess that does qualify in the... It is a clash of
0: champions, they're just not fighting for the belts.
2: Yes. I also have a few jobbers of note for this, because there's a bunch of jobber matches between the Powers of Pain and the World Warriors. I have Bob Riddle. It's a nice name. That's a good one. I have Gary Steinborn. <laughs> not sure where he's from. We have El Negro, which is a pasty middle-aged white dude. I believe he's wearing red the first time I see him. Oh my gosh. He appears again on another show, at least wearing a uh, red mask and black trunks but El Negro. Yeah. Why? <laughs> and the pinnacle of all jobbers, Randy Hogan. WCW hired this jobber guy, gave him the Hulk Hogan sort of horseshoe bald spot look and the mustache, and had him lose every match he, they possibly could because Hulk Hogan is currently the champion in WDF at this time, selling out arenas everywhere. So we're getting our revenge by this loser guy, have the same name as him. Implying is like the th- weird third cousin that just sucks, apparently.
0: I don't know what's more surprising that wrestling companies are that petty, mm-hmm. or that that's not the only ha- time that happens. WWE oh, yeah. does it with Gilbert later on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just Uh-oh. like. But really, how petty do you have to be to be like, well, they've got a champion, we're going to name a guy similar to their champion and dress him kind of alike and give him a similar haircut just to walk him out and have him pinned regularly what does that actually give you
2: yeah well and this is and this is a long run too he's around from like 1985 through 1994 even oh off and on gosh. randomly it's not like they did it one time like okay it was just a joke but now he's a regular appearance he's on like three of the shows i watched so <laughs> he's a regular cast member on the show they could have made
1: more puns if they just gave him a different name every time and and yeah like Terry Bill Hogan there you go <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah they got a lot of fun with that let me just some dude named Randy Hogan yeah got to be that Bill Time that is funny
5: ah oh, don't you love it that's right there back the mighty road warriors the Legion of Doom Fucking Animal fantastic that's
6: right Dana closet! everybody out there probably wondering why I have this mask on? That's because the National Wrestling Alliance and all the commissioned wrestlers in the world won't let me wrestle unless I wear some protective gear. No, March 26th, Barbarian Wildlife Power's the Pain. You thought you put me out of wrestling. You didn't. You think a Bob match is gonna hurt this, huh? I've been throwing hockey pucks in all day, and he ain't been bothered a bit. You know, Tony <laughs> Savani, there's, all oh, oh, excuse me, David. I've had a few turnbuckles in my day. I don't even know my own name sometimes. There's all kinds of jobs for all kinds of people. Some people are into snow removal. Some are into garbage removal. Some are even in the wart removal. Well be animal farm the new company. We're in the head removal. And we're gonna stick and remove some heads too. Starting up with the barbarian in the warlord, and you can see it at home in your own house on your own TV. March 27th. TVS Ted Turner. Never met the man. Go. Oh. But you gotta like him, because he's putting us in the ring, and he's going to let us do what we do best. I'm happy my brother is back. <laughs> you know something, Copy? Sure, that thing hurts a lot. But I've learned the channel that's hurt, and the hate. Pause the pain. I hate you.
2: Right. Oh,
1: that's right. The Legion of Doom, they're definitely back. Coming up. <laughs>
0: uh... <laughs> Good yeah. good uh, good to good to know we found our moral center there.
2: <laughs> yeah. That that's our first promo back by the way.
0: Yes. That is great. So Hawk has been hurling hockey pucks at Animal all day to test the mask, mm-hmm. which I guess it's a good thing that it worked. Yes. <laughs> and um it's also great him uh clearly not recognizing who's interviewing him mm-hmm. at first.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm sorry, David. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's Tony Giovanni, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Habits, I guess, die hard.
1: So I still don't know what to say.
0: <laughs> There's a lot of energy in that promo, at least. Mm-hmm. You you definitely get a, a good sense of enthusiasm. And they sound more... See, that's, that's more what I thought a Dr. Death promo would sound right? like. Right, yeah. Very, very angry people shouting at me. Yeah. <laughs> so that all leads up to our barbed wire match between the Road Warriors and Dusty Rhodes versus the Powers of Pain and Ivan Koloff, managed by Paul Jones. Now, there's something I didn't notice when we were watching this together, but noticed afterwards, and that's that the match graphic notes that this is a Chicago Street Fight match, and it also subtitles it a six-man Texas barbed wire match. Now, interesting note that doesn't have anything to do with anything, really, but there actually is, or was... More accurately, a Chicago, Texas. Ah. It, it existed in from 1889 to 1904. Uh, it was renamed Stemmons in 1904 and ultimately disappeared when its rival small town of La Mesa, two miles south, probably butchered the pronunciation of that, yeah. won a vote to become county seat, and basically everybody left and went to live there instead. I sincerely doubt that anyone was actually referencing it, that by calling a six-man Texas barbed wire match a Chicago street fight, but it's an interesting coincidence all the same. Yeah. There you go. I also, I also wonder what makes this a Texas barbed wire match specifically, but... It's where they really got the barbed wire. Oh, there you go. Uh, they're the supplier.
2: Maybe Chicago made the ring and Texas made the barbed wire? So oh, I'll
0: give you that. that. That might work. Lots of brawling. There's a good dropkick somewhere in there by Hawk. Mhm. There's more brawling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Animal and Dusty Rhodes use the barbed wire and post more than the heels starting out, which is kind of interesting. Hawk impressively press slams Ivan Koloff. It's hard to really follow much in this match for at least it was for me cuz everyone's fighting all at once. It's just like a mass of people in the ring. Yeah, it is. The heels do gradually turn things around. But Animal solves that problem by going around headbutting people with his protective mask. That leads to Dusty doing his punching combo and his really hilarious uh, windmilling hands punch. Mm -hmm. Hawk hits a really awkward jumping punch off the top rope at one point, and Warlord doesn't really seem to know how to take it. Ultimately, after quite a bit of brawling, Animal dodges Barbarian's big headbutt off the top rope and just pins him for the win.
2: I have note on that. I did rewatch it after you mentioned you couldn't follow that very well. I think it's Animal must be the one that slams Warlord down. He's going to pin him. Barbarian who had been thrown out earlier, thus getting the whole barbed wire thing, just kind of climbs back at to the top rope and jumps in the headbutt. The idea being he's going to hit Animal while he's down there, but then Animal moves and he hits Warlord. Oh, okay, and he so he doesn't.
0: I could not even tell that Warlord was on the ground with the amount of people they had in the ring.
2: I had to rewatch it a second time.
0: <laughs> not a particularly interesting match in my book, honestly. There's there's yeah. a lot of... It's, it's pretty much just big guys punching each other, and occasionally someone will do something a bit interesting with a, a, a good power move that they managed to highlight. But there's so much going on that I couldn't follow a wit of this you think that's the camera work? I think partially camera work and partially it's just, it's a six-man match with all six people in the ring at all times. It gives it a battle royale feel, and those outside of the Royal Rumble are always a bit hard to follow. Yes. There's there's too many people in the ring, and if they're all trying to do something interesting, you can't decide what to focus on. Either one of two things happens. One, everyone does try to do everything interesting at once, and it becomes a mess. Or two, like in this case, you get mostly large amounts of brawling, and then occasionally someone decides to do something more interesting than that. So big brawl matches always sound like they'll be interesting, mm-hmm. but in my experience, they tend not to be that good.
2: So in the first week's show, there's a promo by the manager, Paul Jones, who doesn't like this, this match stipulation, because he doesn't like Barbara, he does anyway, his guys getting cut and up and maimed. So of course, when they come up with a match, they don't cover up whatsoever. They, yeah, you know, put on shirts because as a street fight, you can sort of not be in wrestling gear, yeah. which Dusty, Dusty is.
0: Dusty comes out in a in a like tank
2: top at least. He's wearing a shirt, jeans, and he's wearing gloves. More importantly, yeah. literally everybody else is wearing their wrestling gear as if they weren't aware they're were going into a barbed wire match. Yeah, it's very
0: strange. It's rather tame for a barbed wire match. I think there was some bleeding in it, but it's not like yeah a gusher. Not that I particularly wanted it to be because I'm not. I don't have that strong of a stomach, but no. still, it's you kind of expect more when you hear barbed wire brawl. The post-match I found much more interesting than the match itself. Oh, sure. The heels attack after the match uh, ticked off about losing and knock out all the faces with a chain. Animal hilariously visibly helps his protective hockey mask slip off after he's hit in the post-match brawl. He just, like, gets kicked, tips his head back, and not particularly quickly, rubs his hand up over the mask to pull it loose enough that it'll finally fall off. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure why one of the heels couldn't just take it off. It's like, why does yeah. he have to remove that? Uh, the heels go to beat up Animal afterwards to try to re-injure his eye, but Dusty and Hawk manage to save him, and the heels flee. You
2: could a lot of things with this match. But you could have, for example, had Dusty roll in you know, Ivan Koloff, for example, roll him into the match... Or into the ring, rather. And they fight in the ring, and the Road Warriors and the other two fight on the outside, and then yeah. they enter. So break it into sections, maybe? Or, likewise, have some people go down, so it's just two on two for a while, then three and three for the ending. And instead, it's just, they're all fighting at the same time. The camera is just the hard camera place, like, 20 feet away, like, stuck to a wall and doesn't move at all. Yeah. And you have to just look at a single shot and try to figure out what's happening at all the times. Which really doesn't work for me, unfortunately. I did
1: like if there's a favorite person in out of the six, like you can watch them the whole time because, you know, like the, the camera angles do have most of the True. people in there at all times. So if you were really rooting for one, you could you could follow that match. But to try to pick out uh, things like the only thing that I think they accomplished, they're like, oh, the uh, hockey mask or, or protective mask works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they threw it away so it didn't get damaged. It was, it was nice to see Road Warriors. I mean, we did, I, I've met one of them. Uh, we, we had them actually at our school, and it was just nice to see them do how they were in the, early on in their career.
0: Yeah, those two guys are just wonderfully nuts in the ring sometimes, and wonderfully mm-hmm. nuts on promos.
2: WCW loves certain kind of gimmick matches. One they love to do at this time period is called a scaffold match. See so if you can follow this. A scaffold match is a match where you climb a scaffold and fight on it. That's how the match ends when one or both of the people will fall off. They've done singles scaffold matches. They've done tag team scaffold matches. It's most famous for poor Jim Cornette being dropped off one. Big Bubba's supposed to catch him, but doesn't. He lands all his body weight on one of his legs in the ring, and yeah, he doesn't. He never walked straight the same way ever since. Yeah. So, with that in mind, that's the next step in this Powers of Pain-Road Warriors feud. Like, we want you to do these matches next. This is our next big thing. Clearly, the Powers of Pain, I'm guessing, talked to Jim Cornette or watched one of these and said, uh, yeah, we're going to not do that. (laughs) Instead, we're going to just, I don't know, let's go to WDF instead. So, we'll just (laughs) leave the company. We're literally just going to leave here instead. So... The tiles were now vacant. Expression we hear very many times going through WCW history. Yeah. Tiles are vacated all the time, unfortunately. So good news, they do have a match later, sometime that year, determine who will be the new six man tag team champions. Ends up being Dusty Rhodes and the Road Warriors. So at least we have some flow from this match. Unfortunately, that story didn't take a turn. But a month or so into it, the Road Warriors turn heel and beat up Dusty Rhodes. So they're still the six-man tag champions with him, but they're not aligned anymore. <laughs> this brings us to Class of Champions in December, which gives us a singles match between Road Warrior Animal and Dusty Rhodes. And if the Road Warrior wins the match, they get to replace Dusty Rhodes officially as their third partner. So they can be heels together and, you know, fight for the titles and all that. Animal wins the match, and Dusty is now out of the tag team. And is replaced by a Japanese wrestler named Tenryu, who, come January, decides he'd rather not hang around uh, America and wrestle with 6 man matches anymore because he wrestled in Japan. So the titles are just vacated completely and gone forever in January. <laughs> so, yeah.
0: The illustrious WCW 6 man tag team
2: titles. Yes. Technically, last until the end of the year, but just barely. <laughs>
3: Well, welcome back after an extended absence to Nikita Kolov. A different look, Nikita Kolov. Nikita Kolov, you see. I am different. There is nobody like Nikita Kolov.
7: I am no breed Russian, you see. In the Soviet Union, Nikita Kolov have the glasnosti perestroika. Well, this is Nikita Kolov's glasnosti perestroika. I wish I could say in the last two months that I have had a good time. Just take it easy. But it's not true, you see. I have had much trouble. I have talked to many young people in the past two months. And you know what I talk about? I talk about this right here. We oh. What is it uh?
3: Get high on sports, I go not drugs. That's right, you see,
7: I talk to young people about how just how important it is to have good health for your life, you see. Cause to me, life is very important and health is very important. Somebody close to me, each day I see, fight for life. And when Kevin Sullivan come out here, when Dick Murdoch come out here, Mike Tando come out here, and try to take my health from me and my love, then you see, I become a fighter. And that's why I stand out here today. When you see Kevin Sullivan, he say yeah, but Nikita, you don't have a belt no more. Right. Well, that might be true. But you see, I don't need a belt to be a champion. That's right, Kevin Sullivan. I don't need a belt to be a champion. I have had every title you can have in the NWA, except for one. You know which one?
3: The World Heavyweight the World Championship.
7: Heavyweight title, that's right. I don't care if it's Rick Flair. I don't care if it's around Garvin, I don't care if it should be his name, or even my super partner Dusty Rhodes, whoever is world with champion, you have to know I'm going to be coming after you. I'm going to be in your face now, you see. And talking about Dusty Road, that make me think of what I see on TV last night. Yeah. I come with Tony Blanchard, what is wrong with you? You're not right up here Tony Blanchard. Something wrong up here to attack my friend. TA, all I have to say to you is you are very lucky not to walk away, if you walked away, I hope you did not, but you see, there is one thing I want to say before I go, and that is I want to let all the people know, just like all the, the great people right here in the Green Bar I want to let them know that the superpowers, Dusty Road and Nikita Kolov are going to be at the Crockett Cup, and we are going to defend the Crockett Cup. With Brian. It's a pleasure to be back. Thank you. <laughs>
2: I'm still not clear where he's from. <laughs> I will say he sounds a bit French when he's saying Ric Flair and Ron Garvin. <laughs> Ric Flair. Ron Garvin.
1: Now, I know that everyone's supposed to ham everything up and have their own persona. Yes. And, yes. and, and, and everything. But about a third through the monologue, for whatever reason, um, all I could hear was cookie monster (laughs) and and everything he was saying and and everything. I was just like, I'm just
0: waiting for him to talk about cookies. Yeah. I can totally hear that now. Oh my God. I will never hear another Nikita Koloff promo in the same way. Thank you very much. Uh, No, you're welcome. I love him just like working in Glasnost and Perestroika twice, like in the opening 10 seconds of his promo. He's just like, out of nowhere, just is like, Mikhail Gorbachev, Glasnost Perestroika, Dukitikolov, Glasnost Perestroika. It's like, what? Thanks. <laughs> okay. And he has so many topics he goes over. He's like the super Russian version of a Jim Cornette promo. Yes. He's just like talking at hyperspeed. He's also the second person tonight to declare that he doesn't need a belt to be a champion. Uh, Dr. Death declares the same thing. I, I don't think either of them quite gets how championships work
2: yeah <laughs> it's a slight
1: flaw in their argument yeah is that like a theme of the program i guess or? so
0: it's it's clash of the champions so i guess they want to declare themselves champions to be on the to be worthy of being on the show i guess
2: well the, the thing with the kid at kolov you have to understand is that as a russian he's scores course naturally a villain like ivan kolov is earlier yeah and in kayfabe or wrestling logic they were brothers i believe that's how it works i believe they were brothers
0: yeah, I can't remember. That's the same last name.
2: Yeah. Well, they could be brothers, they could be brothers, cousins.
0: Brothers, <laughs> cousins, something around there.
2: But yeah, so they were together for a while. There was a third Russian as well. Russian being an air quote, because none of them are actually from Russia. In case you didn't get that from the voice. No clue. Yeah, no, I've, it's seamless. But he's a good guy now, so suddenly he has to be super Isle of America. I say it's ghoul kids, don't do drugs. USA number one. Just so you sort of compensate for the fact that he's dual russian air quote (laughs) so now he he's super good but don't worry yes it's just just so don't be threatened by him now okay yeah
0: and it's another promo on this show that doesn't really have a lot to do with what's on the actual show it's kind of a weird theme where where i guess this is a free tv one not a pay-per-view so they are trying to use it to build towards future angles too but it is just kind of odd feeling like this is such a big event but half the night, our concentration is on something other than this event.
2: It is also worth noting that there's several promos where they reference Dusty Roggensen with the bat I recapped earlier, but they don't actually show it on the Class of Champions.
0: Yeah. Next up, we have Lex Luger and Barry Windham versus Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard, the Horseman, with J.J. Dillon in a tag match for Arn and Tully's NWA World Tag Team Championship. Al, you got any uh, coverage of a story for this one?
2: I do, I do. It's a little complicated, but I'll see if you can follow it. So, the Horsemen had the tag titles, and William Luger wanted to win the tag titles, so we having this match. Mind blown. Yeah, there really is no more than that. I see.
1: Well, I, I, I'm still thrown that the guy's name is Horseman, or
0: <laughs> oh, <laughs> they're the Four Horsemen. Yeah, they're they are two of the members of the Four Horsemen, which are a group that we'll we'll see the establishment of over when we do the Starcade. But uh, mm-hmm. basically, it's a group of of heels that Ric Flair forms to help him defend his World Heavyweight Championship. They help him cheat in matches or, you know, do dastardly things to take care of his opponents before they become a problem for him. One of the earlier, like, big stables in wrestling that are, um no pun intended with the word stables. I that, was going to say. That... that, that, that are a a larger group of wrestlers that all band together with a common purpose and really just kind of become a dominant force on the scene. So you don't see them fully in that light tonight, but just know the Horsemen are an institution in WCW and a huge part of WCW history, as we we will see several versions of them just over the Starcade run. Yes.
1: Do they actually like assign them names? Is is he war or pestilence? Sadly no, they don't mm. do the full
0: apocalyptic thing, I don't think. Death and taxes. Which one would be war? That would that probably be Arn, I think, right? Mm. He's the enforcer. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, it makes sense. Arn's the enforcer. So yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I don't I don't know who I'd define for the other ones, but
2: Was it war, famine, pestilence, and what's War it? War, famine, it's, pestilence,
0: and death, I think.
2: I I thought it was death and taxes. It's not death and taxes. <laughs> If it was Death and Taxes, Mike Rotunda would be in there. But that's yes. Other thing. Jobbers of note, I have Ricky King. It's kind of a fun name. Dale Laparous.
0: That is a complicated name. Isn't I it? Kinda li- I kind
2: of dig it. not a bad name, which is very complicated for a jobber. And lastly, Dave Spearman.
0: Okay. Al, I think you pointed this out when we were watching during the show, but yeah, it's, it's weird. Lex and Arn. Are both wearing red trunks, but yes. they're not the ones that are teamed up. Mm-hmm. You've got Lex teamed up with Barry, and Arn teamed up with Tully. But Lex and Arn are matching colors, which is just a little bit odd. Coordinate right. your colors, people.
2: Yeah, it's very strange.
1: Do they ever play into it, where like one, like say, one of the tag team? You know, gets blinded or whatever, and ends up you know attacking his own teammate because he's wearing the same clothes uh, or the same outfit.
0: I don't know that I've ever seen it from that angle. They, there's no. definitely frequently points where teams will pull what people will often call twin magic, mm-hmm. um, where two like teams. <laughs> <laughs> no, they don't turn themselves to stone to block a hallway in a really depressing scene. Um, well, now I'm sad. Yeah, no. What what it'll be is two wrestlers that kind of looks. Usually a little bit similar and are dressed similar, uh, will, uh, switch places when the referee is not looking so that the injured one is outside and the, the non injured one is lying down in a, what looks like a vulnerable position and can catch a quick pinfall on the unsuspecting enemy wrestler when he comes over. Yeah. But I haven't seen too often wrestlers being confused by someone who's dressed like their partner. I, I I suppose there's there's some moments where that happens, but it tends to be some larger plot.
2: The best Twin Matic is probably I think really least Bow's favorite, it's the Killer Bees that would show up in a couple of years. In WWF, like,
1: like the SNL skit,
2: kind of. <laughs> <laughs> They're two two white dudes that come out wearing black and yellow trunks, not wearing mm-hmm. masks. They kind of vaguely look like each other, but they wouldn't be wearing masks. when They come out.
1: Does one of them look like Belushi?
2: No. no. Oh, the tend kind to of look like Belushi at this point, but not actual wrestlers. But no, they come out wearing similar outfits and looking kind of similar. They must need to put on masks before the match starts so they can switch out. Yes. So, as Bob likes to say, they are literally announcing the referee they are playing to cheat.
0: Yes. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no reason to put the mask on because you weren't wearing them to begin with. <laughs> right? So, you're putting them on as a cue to the referee. Make sure to watch very carefully. We are definitely going to cheat. We start off with Luger dominant, going right to the torture rack for what might have been an early win. Arn interrupts and and Luger gets in trouble for a bit, but quickly manages to tag Wyndham, who beats up Tully until Arn manages to nail him with a DDT while the ref is distracted and carry on with his beautiful spinebuster. The announcers highlight that everyone is using their best moves and everyone is kicking out which is pretty common today, but not so much in the 80s. Wyndham is reeling from Arn's big moves all the same, so Arn and Tully start trading off to keep him from getting to Luger. Both sides hit some major power moves. Wyndham takes a lot of punishment, but does get some very big moves in of his own. Meanwhile, Lex leads the crowd in cheering for Wyndham. Finally, Wyndham gets the tag, and Luger gets a monster pop when he finally comes in. He destroys Arne and Tully at first, but they fight back, and J.J. Dillon pops up with a chair, only for Luger to shift his weight and send Arne into the chair to get the pin. Oftentimes, a uh, interference spot, especially when it goes wrong, feels really contrived. Yes, but very much so. That one is just like, J.J.'s up, and like immediately Luger's just like shifts his weight and sends, uh, sends Anderson into the chair. It's... Really, really smooth, and you totally buy that J.J. doesn't have time to realize the wrong guy's headed there. Yes. Or even absolutely. catch at first that he hit the wrong guy. It's so fast. Yeah. During during this, I also noticed I I did not get this during any point previous or at any earlier point in the commentary, but apparently Lex and Wyndham are either called the Twin Towers or the Two Towers or something like that. So I'm not sure if it's a reference to the World Trade Center or the second of the Lord of the Rings books, but one or the other. Lex and Wyndham celebrate their win very, very briefly and just kind of stride on out of there. It feels really, really short considering the crowd's, like, enormous eruption of, uh, of celebration when Luger finally gets the tag. It felt like they should be pacing around the ring holding those belts up. And, yeah. And yeah, but... Mm-hmm. This is another tag match on the show, and yeah, like you were saying earlier, Alec, kind of... They do the same basic pattern... Mm-hmm. But this felt like a little bit more in the way of, like, Wyndham gets some hope spots from time to time. Yes. There's a little bit more of a back and forth from time to time on this one, I thought.
2: Yeah, it's definitely a more balanced version of that for me, anyways. Yeah.
0: hmm I really love Arn Anderson. He's one of my favorite wrestlers. He <laughs> oddly reminds me of my dad, I think, in terms of his general look.
2: Sure, I can see that, yeah.
0: He's one of those guys that I think for me... When Arn's in the ring, it feels just a little bit more real. And it's not that he doesn't do anything cartoonish from time to time, but he will he does little things that just feel logical. Like, if he gets knocked silly, he'll kind of, like, try and punch at the guy a little bit to, in, to ward him off sometimes. I don't think we saw that in this match, no. but that's a common Arn spot. And just his, like, really serious kind of tough guy demeanor and everything. I know he's a heel, but I will always love Arn Anderson. Anytime sure. he shows up, he's so great. I love Lex Luger, too, for different reasons. <laughs> he's, yeah. He's more yeah. variable, but that guy... There's just something endearing about Lex Luger. Mm-hmm. And in this match, he is undeniably super over. I mean, the crowd adores him here.
2: Oh, yeah, for sure.
0: He's not necessarily the best guy in the ring, or the at all the best guy on promos.
2: sure, for sure yeah.
0: But... He has a really, really good look, and he can have a lot of energy and really uh, come in and kind of have a good uh, synthesis with the crowd sometimes. So, yeah, I I, I enjoy Lex Luger. I was sad we don't get uh, much in the way of Luger selling tonight. That's a real highlight of Luger matches. He's just a gloriously loud wrestler sometimes, and you don't get a lot of that in this match, but I'm sure we'll have other opportunities. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, for me, everybody involved in this did a really good job. It's a hard-hitting match, but it feels a little more disciplined than the earlier tag match, I guess I'd say. And there's a really good build to Luger getting the hot tag and coming in. But Wyndham never looks like he's going down and gets a lot of good hope spots over the course of it. Does a good job of keeping me rooting for his comebacks, I thought. And also Arn and Tully are just terrific heels, Mm -hmm. doing a lot of really, really good just... Beatdowns and controlling the action, and just some really nice, hard-hitting moves and cheating when they can, you know, but not overdoing anything, which really felt good.
2: They have a way of making things feel, like you said, very natural. Yeah. So when they're in control, everything feels as close to a real fight as you want <clears throat> wrestling to feel. You know, obviously, you know, was planned out and who are doing things they had in mind, but some people make that look really tra- transparent. Yeah, They go, okay, now I'm going to spot B and then to spot C. Whereas Arnatoly do nice little things that really make you feel like this is all natural, not realize you're being led from point A to point B. It's not over the top. and
0: The guys that go out there and try to make it feel just that, that little extra touch more real and to, to react to things like you would if this was actually a sport and this was actually a, a match... I think it really helps for me, and you can still do some of the moves that really only work in pro wrestling, but just that extra touch of when I watch an Arn Anderson match, I can often understand why for a long time people did think wrestling was real. He has this seriousness about him and this like, this believability about what he does that, that for me just works really well.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, great match. Never really seems to slow down. There's a sleeper hold in there, but it lasts a mass- matter of seconds. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed this one a lot.
2: Yeah, they Yeah, they didn't drag it out. Yeah. Coming off of this show, Barry Winderman and Alex Lugo are now the world tag team champions of the, mm-hmm. the NDA. They will go on to the next Clash champion, to Clash 2, defending them against Blanchard and Arison again, whereupon... Barry Wyndham turns heel and joins the Four Horsemen. Aww. Yep. So now Tully Blanchard and Anderson are not champions again. We're in April, May, I think it is. They go on a whole tile through September, where they lose them at a house show. The reason why they lose them at a house show in September is because Blanchard and Anderson go to the WWF.
0: Ah, right. Yeah. I knew that was coming up at some point in the near future.
2: That's in September. Yep. <laughs>
0: The company is kind of in a hot period now, but also not actually doing that well financially. I think that's one of the signs you can kind of tell that you know we get right. towards September and two guys that were a huge, huge highlight on the show are gone. Yeah, you know they're in they're in the competition now.
2: It's been a whole
1: yeah, it's been a whole year over there. They're getting poached.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's from what I understand of that one. It's part A we can make good money there, and as part A the working environment here is not as good as it used to be and we disagree with some of the things that are going on. So we're going to just try our luck over there and see if it see how it's how it works out. Next up is Rick Flair versus Sting in a singles match for Flair's NWA World Heavyweight Championship. This is Sting's first shot at the big time really. He has actually uh I'll go into this a bit later but he's not been in Jim Crockett Promotions too long. He's been in the company for less than a year at this point, actually.
1: It's pretty quick.
0: Yeah, yeah. He's, he's at the top of the card here. They clearly have a lot of faith in this guy and really want to try him out in the big time, which is very impressive for a pretty young wrestler.
2: So I don't know if this is explained more if I'd watch this long term. I watched four weeks of show leading up to this. In the four weeks of show leading up to it, they've just said that Sting's fighting for the title, and Sting wrestles four different matches, two of which are pre-taped from live events, two of which are live in the studio, but there's no storyline information other than T. Sting, and he's getting a world title match. Flair wrestles one match during the build-up, a six-man match, but otherwise he wrestles like live events because they're touring other than doing the show. But he has one promo on the very last show expressing issue with the match coming as, at that point tomorrow. And the world champion will be defending his title.
6: Can you feel her breathing down your neck, Robert? Absolutely. I guarantee you they won't like us in Dallas. But when the show's over tonight, you and I and this beautiful young lady, Patty Mullins, the pen of the year. She's got girlfriends all over the world. And we're going to take Greensboro Park tomorrow night. You understand what I'm talking about? Tomorrow night, after Ric Flair successfully defends the World Heavyweight Championship. Ladies and gentlemen, if ludicrous as it might be, they have set this up to have three judges. That's right, three judges outside the ring, just in case Sting is fortunate enough to wrestle me the entire 60-minute time limit. So what do I do? You know me to be a man way beyond his means in every department I said to myself, I said, what kind of a judge do I know beyond a shadow of a doubt will rule in favor of the nature boy? Woo! So I look around the country and who's available? The most beautiful woman on the face of this earth. Yeah! The head of the year, Patty Mullen, flies right in, woo, in the Learjet, in the Greensboro. She's gonna be styling. Oh, Tony, get close to this baby, and profiling is the only she can do, and I want everybody in Greensboro, I'm talking about all you punks that think you've been somewhere with a woman and never have been, to look at what the Nature Boy <laughs> is standing next to you. How about this? Tony? talk to her, brother. She's not only good looking, she can talk all night long.
5: It must be quite a thrill being right here with the world champion and being part of the big event tomorrow.
2: Oh, it is. I'm looking so forward to it. Oh,
6: God.
3: Oh, you can't
0: beat that,
6: can Sting, Sting, you know how I like to show off. I'm the kind of guy that likes to tell you how it is. And when I've got something, whoo, like Patty boat, standing 10 feet from me. You know for a fact, Luger, you got to be beside yourself. You are that punk very with out there. When she saw you pop that shirt, Luger, five minutes ago, she said, nature boy, Luger's a lot like that punk thing. They think that running around doing this does it for women like myself. It doesn't, guys. They like clothes. They like airplanes. They like limousines. They like men of the world. Oh, baby. Tomorrow, Greensboro. Woo! The nature boy will ride high in the skies. Tony, you be there. She got a friend for you too, pal.
0: That's
5: that's good enough.
6: Let's go to the ring.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so... So, kind of a lot to unpack in that promo, but um, one thing we're definitely, definitely clear on from that promo, I think, is that there's definitely three judges. Yep. And it's definitely a match for 60 minutes.
2: Yes, absolutely. He's
0: he's very clear on both of those points. And that women like clothes and airplanes. Yes. John, when, when, uh, when you were wooing your wife, did you make sure to... Go around in lots of nice clothes and and uh, fly in leer jets. No. <laughs> Apparently, Ric Flair's method isn't for everyone.
1: <laughs> uh, no, I mean he's got a better woo than uh, others, I suppose. Yeah,
0: yeah, he definitely, he definitely can do the do the woo. You want you want to try your hand at a Ric Flair woo? <laughs> no. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe later. Yeah, we were definitely really clear in that promo that this is a match with three judges for a 60-minute time limit. So it's important to note that this match has five judges and is for a 40-minute time limit. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There must be a winner, so we've got a panel of five judges to ensure that. The judges are Gary Juster of the NWA Board of Directors, former NWA wrestler Sandy Scott, the Pet of the Year, who we heard referenced in that promo, Patty Mullin.
2: Who's not a cat. I know it sounds like that from the name, but yeah. he's not a cat.
0: I'm just sad that it's not Patty Mullins.
2: Yeah, right? I'm going to
0: you so much crap, John. Yep. Ken Osmond of Leave It to Beaver fame. And Jason Hervey from The Wonder Years, who oddly gets introduced after Ken Osmond, but was standing before him in the Order.
2: That's a clear sign of the issue they're having. Because they have the last two people, and they get them announced in the wrong order, the standing. Yes.
1: Well, it makes me think that they're add-ons. Like, you know, they needed to have some sort of, uh, you know, sponsor to help do this free thing. So, like, oh, well, these people, you know, their shows might need, you know, a little bit of boost. So, we'll, we'll make it five judges instead of three. And... Well,
2: and also, if you go back to the sort of weird promo with Ken Osmond slash Eddie Haskell, he's asked by... Cornette if he's going to stay here and watch the show and he didn't go oh yes yeah, so I'm going to be a judge in the main event of the show.
0: <laughs> That's true yeah so it's almost like it's decided between that promo and the main event we're going to add two more judges. Oh hey we've, you know, Jason Hervey was backstage for some reason we invited him out here and hey Ken you want to be a judge for a wrestling match? Sure, sure I'll do that. Can I Can I finally decide whether I'm in character or not? <laughs> I oh, Anyway I'm sure that going from three judges to five judges definitely won't bite them later on.
2: No, no. <laughs>
0: Sting comes out to a really great 80s rock tune with a wonderful white and gold robe on, black fringe on it, and a great gold scorpion on the back of it. It looks awesome. Mm -hmm. Like I said before, I need to note here that Sting at this point has been in Jim Crockett Promotions for less than a year, and he's actually only been wrestling at all for about three years. He started wrestling in 1985, and he came over to Jim Crockett Promotions in July of 1987 when they bought out the UWF. It's now March of nineteen eighty-eight, so he's still very new in Jim Crockett Promotions, and he's getting one heck of an opportunity. They clearly have high hopes for this man.
2: So when he starts into wrestling, they put another wrestler with him and think, "Hey, you guys are both a similar build. You're both really big, young, jacked guys. Similar haircuts. We'll put the mm-hmm. face paint on, and you guys will be a tag team. Your partner's gonna be this Jim Hellwig guy. We, you know, he'll, he'll be good for you, and we'll call you the Blade Runners.
0: Yeah." Is
1: it like the movies? Are they replicants?
2: I mean, that would make that would have been a good story. They're big. They, it would, yeah. They're
0: big beefy dudes.
2: Honestly, it was eighty five, eighty six. That that would have been a good story to see the replicants that were on the loose. Yeah, yeah. That's the only way they could be that big. I mean, what, how would you get that gigantic? Yep. Yeah, Jim Howey, mm-hmm. of course, is the Ultimate Warrior.
0: Yeah, it goes on to become Ultimate Warrior over in the WWF, who is also a rather uh, muscular individual who paints his face multiple colors that's true he is slightly more insane than sting in his ring persona and not quite as good in the ring overall but has a similar connection with the crowd of just people love him and he has a lot of energy but yeah so just a really good opportunity in any case for sting as a very young wrestler and very early in his career his opponent, Ric Flair, the champion, comes out in a white robe with super glittery silver star patterns on it. Very sparkly. It's not quite as ornate as some of Ric Flair's robes will become later on, but it's still a pretty darn good one. J.J. Mm-hmm. Dillon, as part of the match stipulations as well, gets put in a cage and hovered above the crowd, which, honestly, the position of that felt a little dangerous. I hope they were really confident in their cables, because if that thing came down, it was killing somebody.
2: Yeah, that's a real OSHA thing going on that really should have been addressed at that time. <laughs>
0: yeah. JJ looks astonishingly calm up in that cage. I would be freaking out. I mean, even knowing it's all an act and everything, I. I heights and me. No. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> that is the one issue I, I do have with the previous match, sort of tying back to it. Yeah. As good as that finish is, where his distraction backfires and his team loses the titles, that immediately leads up to a match where we have to make sure we put him in a cage, that way he won't interfere and cost Sting the match.
0: Right, yeah, he just screwed up interfering. So. Maybe you should let him out there and he'll screw up interfering again.
2: <laughs> yeah, Sting should... Yeah, here, here's a chair. Yeah, yeah no, hold, it's hold cool. That. It's yeah, cool. It.
0: They intro Sting with what I think has to be my favorite wrestler introduction ever. Introing is his height uh, and weight and everything, but then end it with, this is Sting. I'm like, that always makes him feel so epic. that He's the only guy that they do that intro with, The the really emphasized... Uh, name for him. Everyone else gets, you know, the normal uh, Ric Flair or uh, Dusty Rhodes, Lex Luger. Sting always gets, this is Sting. It just feels so cool. The world's heavyweight champion, however, is a call I don't like quite as much. I don't know why they always do this in WCW, but they always are calling it the world's title rather than the world title. It's just a small thing, but it's like, I know I'm going to harp on this all the time.
2: (laughs) Yeah. It's the same way for me that they will constantly say, you know, that's why I came back to the WCW. I mean, you came back to the World Championship Wrestling? Yeah. (laughs) Which is really, I think it's just a care. There's a lot of people that say that were in the WWF, and that makes sense. Yes. You were in the World Wrestling Federation, but that doesn't really work with WCW.
0: Yeah. Also, have to note, further fashion notes tonight, Sting's tights, once he takes off the robe, have another really awesome Scorpion logo on them. They're, they're a black and gold color scheme and just, like, really highlights that logo. It, it's a great... I love anytime he has the big Scorpion logos on, on in places, and it's another thing that just makes him stand out.
2: He's all about branding.
0: Yeah. Sting is a wrestler throughout the years. You will always know... When you're seeing him, he you never fail to spot Sting. Mm-hmm. He stands out. He's got the face paint. He's got the robe. He's got the scorpion motifs all over the place. He always is so immediately recognizable. It's a really, really just great design, I think. There's surprisingly little flashy outfits at times in WCW. True. So, Which I think helps Sting stand out even more, but yeah it's amazing how well they knock it out of the park with his with his look regularly throughout the years.
1: do they capitalize or merchandise it? you know like is there sting the cologne and sting the <laughs> and sting the uh botox injection
0: he's got like t shirts over the years and um people always come to the shows with their face painted up like him. I don't know if they sell any like official sting makeup kits or anything, but if they, they didn't, should've. they really should have
2: they yeah. yeah.
0: So um, Bonus glitter. Yeah. Sting also opens us up with that super loud like cry of his that he does so well. I never know exactly what to call that. I guess the stinger call. Yeah. Just to get the motif of the rest of his moves. I love when he does that. He's so loud.
1: Scorpions are known for
0: being loud. Yeah, yeah.
2: It's a bit of a rebel yell kind of thing, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's kind of a... Sounds like a hawk cry almost, which, yeah. again, as you said, John doesn't really fit the scorpion gimmick, but... I don't know, maybe it's Mm -hmm. the noise someone makes when they're stabbed by a scorpion.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Not a pleasant experience.
0: Sting is dominant to start, controlling for about the first half of the match with some big power spots and working around a headlock and later a bear hug. There's quite a bit of the headlock in particular, but they keep moving in and out of it and doing different things with it, with Flare trying to escape but Sting being one step ahead for a while. Rick sells the bear hug in particular mightily, yelling,
2: Oh oh
0: God, my back
2: There's stage acting where you're in a play, and you know, you've gotta make sure that the person in the front row hears everything you're saying, as well as the person in the mm-hmm. all the way in the back row. And you could be in a you know Broadway and it'd be, you know, fifty rows. Yeah. So that's that's basically what Flair is doing. Flair is doing stage acting. Yeah. He's dramatically yelling and shouting so everyone can hear him.
0: Yeah, if you're in row 67 in the nosebleed section, you know that Flair's back is hurting right now.
2: Right. And it, it, the reason it looks weird to us anyways, besides being a modern you know, looking in a modern context, is because we're watching from a video camera that's like 10 feet away from him, so he's shouting with all his lungs and all his effort to make sure people in the back hear them. And we could hear him. But honestly, he was yeah. whispering. Yeah. So it's a, it's a contrast, clear clash styles there.
0: Yeah, I think I, I don't have any problem with it. I think yeah. it's I think it's great. I just it's oh, a yeah. very funny, it's a very fun style that yeah. makes it very very clear what's going on.
2: It's just a good explanation <laughs> for why he does that.
0: Yeah. yeah. Sting finally makes a mistake with a missed stinger splash, and Flair capitalizes using the barricades and turnbuckles to hurt him more. They trade off control here and there with Sting at one point going for the Scorpion Deathlock, his finishing hold, but Rick scrambles to the ropes immediately. A great way to sell fear of the move.
2: Yeah, they make a point in a promo on one of the shows that if at this point there is no counter to the Scorpion Deathlock. The only way to escape oh, okay. it is, is to get the ropes or stop him from putting it on there. So they've said that earlier.
0: That's good. So yeah, it kind of demonstrates that really well, that Rick immediately starts heading for the ropes as soon as it... Uh, is being put on. They fight a little longer, Sting mostly using his power, and Flair using dirty tricks and targeting body parts, leading to Flair focusing on the knee and getting the figure four leg lock. Sting manages to turn it over eventually, and they fight on, with Sting eventually getting a figure four of his own on Rick. Sting gets increasingly aggressive as the match goes on, and with five minutes to go, that costs him again on a big missed Stinger splash. That actually sends him tumbling out of the ring over the top rope. JR calls it the pre Scorpion Deathlock Splash in the Corner. I'm glad they came up with a better name for it eventually.
2: It's an awkward acronym for sure, as well.
0: <laughs> yeah. PSDS. <laughs> ICE TC.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Rolls up uh- the tongue.
0: The two fight for control, and Sting finally manages to hit the Stinger Splash and lock in the Scorpion Deathlock with 30 seconds left. Flair screams and struggles, but he won't give up, and time runs out. So before we discuss the judges bit, I think let's just do a little bit of discussion of the match itself. How did how did that feel to you guys?
2: For me, I was worried that, because so long, that it might repeat itself. Because even yeah. with Flair, I've seen a couple matches where... They're good, but they kind of repeat a little bit. There's one with them in Steamboat we two of us watched, where it's still good, but they definitely... They wrestle, like, the same match twice in one match, almost. Yeah. They repeat a little too much. With, like, alternate
0: outcomes? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in yeah, that one, they kind of go over the same sequence a few times.
2: Even to the point where Flair puts him in the figure four, and then does this cardinal mistake, which is slapping and or hitting the guy, which makes him mad enough to power out. Yeah. that happens at least at least two times in that match. I
0: think it does, twice in the same match there, yeah, which was a little weird. This one's long, but doesn't feel too repetitive. There's a little bit much of the headlock, maybe, early on.
2: Yeah. But
0: they're always doing something different with it. Yeah, absolutely. Right, so...
1: I actually thought it was repetitive, but again, I just don't know the characters well enough. But, you know, you you can see the signature moves coming out and, and lead up to them the, the pull, constant pulling on the ropes and, and gaining power just, just kind of just pulled me out of it yeah. a little bit and but I did really enjoy uh, the, the points where like sting just shrugs it off yeah like you know he I think that he sailed on both sides like you know when when he it was his turn to to deliver something you know he, it didn't matter what what was being dealt to him he just went powered through it yeah and I thought that
0: was great he does a good you know, the kind of Superman comeback, but his always feel like he doesn't totally invalidate what's going on in the match. Yes, it's absolutely. just like my fighting spirit's back and I'm still acknowledging what's happened before, but I'm able to kind of power through it and, and and keep going and kind of get that intimidation factor of demonstrating, yeah, I can just shrug off your blow. I can I can do this. You can kind of see him brace for it a little more than normal sometimes and will himself into being able to to take it, which is a really nice touch. There's a few wrestlers over the the years, um, most notably Hulk Hogan, but a lot of babyface wrestlers over the years will do that Superman comeback, and some do it really well, some do it really poorly. Sting, I think, is one that does it really, really well.
1: And I like that Flair actually, like, cowers. Yeah, he's so good at that, (laughs) isn't he? After, like, the second one, he's like, I'm just not gonna try. (laughs) You
0: know? (laughs) I think they're a great combo over the years. There are many, many Sting versus Ric Flair matches, and after this one, you can kind of see why. There's points where you can tell that maybe Sting doesn't have a full arsenal yet where he can do a lot of different stuff, mm-hmm. but he already has that great connection where it doesn't matter as much.
1: I think he stole my focus for the whole match, pretty much.
0: He's this, this larger-than-life personality that really, really... It's easy to pay attention to him, and it's easy to root for him. I think.
2: Oh yeah, he has that Genesee quoi, as they say.
0: There's a lot of wrestlers over the years that are babyfaces for a long time, and the crowd kind of eventually gets tired of it, and they, you know, they kind of freshen themselves up by becoming heels and stuff. Sting really doesn't ever suffer from that. I don't think he has some character changes over the years, but Sting is Sting, and Sting is except for really rare periods in the latest in the final stages of wcw sting is like always a good guy and always beloved and you can really see why i think you said this while we were watching out but like yeah you, you have to be a real cold-hearted guy to not like sting exactly he's, yeah. he's just so inherently likable and inherently just energetic gets you charged up so yeah, even for a really long match this early in his career, I feel like he does a terrific job. And Flair does a terrific job of kind of like finding different ways to cheat and finding different ways to play around with, you know, the match concept and what he's going to do. And like you said, John, just doing a terrific job of cowering it before Sting when something doesn't work or something doesn't go right for him. It's just a really good relationship. They play off each other really well.
1: Uh, I like the hidden run aspect of it where like, you know, clearly, Sting's got more physical prowess, yeah. and uh, even when he's like doing this, we, we say he runs around on the outside, gets on the turnbuckle. You know, even then, it just—you uh, think he's just going to leave.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's really interesting. You you get this feeling from it that Flair really would like to probably run, but that is something that he will try and do sometimes. Mm-hmm. I think you maybe can look at it as the reason that doesn't happen in this one is this is a judge's thing, and I think that actually fleeing the arena would be a guaranteed way to get all the judges against you. Yeah. So, uh, except probably Patty Mullen based no, on yeah. that promo earlier, <laughs> but,
2: uh, he wooed her with the really fancy jets and uh, fancy clothes. So, yeah. 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 Put a big suit in the 747. That's a four. Yeah. I can't remember what the third thing was.
0: I don't remember either, but I do like you working and he wooed her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the match. And I think for me, that was quite a good one but there's one more part of it that we definitely need to discuss, and that's the judges.
5: Judge Patty Mullen has scored the match for the Nature Boy, Ric Flair. (laughs) Judge Gary Juster has scored the match for Sting. a draw, therefore, still N.W.A. World's Heavyweight Champion, The Nature Boy, Rick Baird!
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I think there's a a show called Win, Lose, or Draw. Um, (laughs) I I, I don't know. There's... majority is sort of a thing. Uh,
0: <laughs> yeah, that, that too.
1: <laughs> and there's clearly some voices that could have been used. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it still would have been an odd number, I think. <laughs> Maybe.
0: Yeah, um... Yeah, so... Maybe. If there's two draws, and one of them likes Sting... There's five judges. We get three results mm-hmm. announced. One of those results is a draw. So they just declare the match a draw. Without checking with the remaining two judges, who presumably might have still changed things, which mm-hmm. is just plain weird. All, my, all I can guess is we're probably right. This is like a last-minute addition of two further judges, mm-hmm. and just somehow they don't actually get results cards for those judges to the guy doing the announcing. And he only has three, because they were only originally planning on three. It's the strangest thing. It's like it's one of those places where WCW does such a good job of trying to sound like they're a legit sports show. But mm-hmm. then they do something like this and it just gets you laughing.
1: I like the response, you know, that the, there's a yay. And a boo, oh, yeah. The crowd's and like and totally into it. And, and Sting, you know, you don't hear any boos, but it's not as loud as the interaction of the first one. Or that maybe that's just the audio. And then when they get to the the draw, it's like, you just think the crowd's just going to fight
2: each other. Yes. Uh
0: (laughs) Yeah, they're so angry. It's great. It's a great spot. You can see why they did the judges because they're getting a terrific reaction. And you can tell, like, it's a, it's kind of a, I think a live test of, Hey, does the, so is the crowd really into Sting? Did they really, really want to see him win? And when, when they announced that one of the judges has ruled for Sting, oh my gosh, that pop is pretty huge. Mm-hmm. It's not quite Luger's tag-in in the previous match, but mm-hmm. it's pretty huge. But yeah, just announcing three of the five judges is definitely interesting.
1: I, I don't like the way they got to the outcome, but I think it's the best outcome in that it solidifies sting as a real contender because if he just got it after the first time he you know went for the, the thing i think the crowd would be very appreciative but i think that the fact that he lost on a technicality is, is gonna just increase the the fanship for that that guy he's like he needs to be acknowledged and solidify
0: those feelings yeah absolutely i think that's that's a very good point that what you what do you want to see now you want to see Sting win the title. You really, really want to see Sting win the title. It made Sting look really, really strong. He looks like he totally could have won that match. It's, really, it's, it's just time ran out. The judges ruled somewhat perplexingly, and he just doesn't get the actual belt. But you can definitely tell he's worthy of being at that level. Now, if you have any, If you had any doubts about Sting going into this match, those are gone that's what this match was set up to do. And this match does that extremely well.
1: And if they weren't jazz, you know, like weren't, you know, totally sold on sting. I I wonder if they would have gave sting the win just because then, you know, now Rick's in that position where now they're going to focus on Rick. I could see that. That's what they want to focus on.
2: Well, that is a tricky thing to, I will mention is that, so with the WWF, whether it's in 1988 or now, ultimately Vince McMahon is in charge. The Vince McMahon says, you're good enough, you should win the world title. No one supersedes Vince McMahon. Yeah. You can try and change his mind, but if he's stuck in his way and says, so-and-so's going to win the title, that's just there.
1: You're going to have to marry my daughter.
2: (laughs) Exactly. Now, at this point, though, this is the NWA, the National Wrestling Alliance. They're made up of, what, seven, eight, ten territories at this point? Yeah.
0: It's increasingly controlled by Jim Crockett Promotions at right. this point, but it's uh. He has his vote Couch yeah, higher, but
2: yeah, but there's still a board that they would meet and go, okay, do we think so and so should win the belt? And if they side no, then he doesn't win the belt. Yeah. So yeah, you really couldn't call an audible with that with them, because the way the system's set up. Like this is W.F. and this happened like with like a Hogan, you know, Jake Roberts match. Vince could have said, yeah, yeah, just just turn to finish and you can win the match.
0: Yeah. It'd be very easy to see Vince, you know, whispering in the referee's ear uh, for for this one when Sting gets him in the de- in, in the deathlock. Tell Rick to give up if it's, if the crowd's reacting that well. But I think, like you said, it also works as just a great, great trial run for Sting at the top of the card. We got a good flow, I think, with some back and forth control and a pretty well designed ending. I think overall, uh, the judging weirdness aside, with really finally getting to hit his moves, mm-hmm. and you really finally feeling like, yes, he's going to do it, and then time runs out. It, like you said, it's that moment where you're like, oh man, I know he can do it now.
2: Yes, you absolutely, know.
0: Yeah. It ran out with 20 minutes on the clock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, apparently. Match, really good. The judges, though, come on.
2: Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the best outcome they could have had with this, if, you, if they really just threw two judges on them, is just have one of them vote for Sting again, and one vote for Flare again. So it's two and two, and then the guy who's a draw is the last one.
0: Inexplicably votes draw in a position where your entire purpose of your position is to prevent there from being a draw. Correct.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That way, at least, it's five people, and you're like, well, it's two for two again, Well, I guess we can't decide.
0: You should have done four judges, and then you can have two vote for Flare, two vote for Sting. Nobody has to vote for a draw, there you go, yeah. and it's still a draw and that works but yeah instead it's an uneven number of judges so someone has to do a nonsensical vote to do it and then you also don't count all the votes it's kind of an accidentally announced it that way went with it hope nobody would notice everybody noticed. You could have voted for one of the judges <laughs> like mullen you know they could have. like she wins she's she, she's very attractive i vote for her yeah that'd probably be uh what's what's the kid's name Jason Hervey, yeah, probably Jason. Jason Hervey votes for the attractive woman he's sitting next to,
2: and that throws <laughs> the number go. off. No one votes draw. He votes for her, he's like you can't count that. Yeah,
0: there you go. Gosh darn teenagers. No. Yeah,
2: Blair is going to hold his title until February of nineteen eighty nine. Where the most one of the more famous WWE shows, is the Chiatown Rumble, right? Where he loses it to steam Steamboat, but we'll get it back eventually. Sting will finally get his day. His day will come in July nineteen ninety.
0: Yeah, so it's quite a distance from this show, considering how hot he is here. Yes. But I think that's one of the good things about Sting is no matter how long they wait on him, he never seems to cool. Yes. He's, he's always just such a big part of WCW. I think they kind of get this feeling with him of, yeah, we can go to him when we need to go to him. Yeah. You know. It's okay. Tony, JR, and Bob Cuddle wrap us up praising Sting's performance and highlighting the tag title change before hyping their future shows. Tony notes that the NWA is the major league of professional wrestling, and JR mentions the Rotunda-Garvin match and happens to note that Kevin Sullivan is a deranged maniac before they sign off. (laughs) Good to get that in.
2: Yeah, quick, quick plug, yeah.
0: For me, it was pretty good overall, I thought. There's kind of some odd parts here and there, the barbed wire match, the college rules match, but it had a really good energy most of the time. Yeah. And... It felt like there were definitely some big special matches. I felt like I could tell that they were going all out to try and pull the attention off of WrestleMania and as a result we get a really solid show. Even the matches that I didn't like as much, like the aforementioned barbed wire match and college rules match, they're not long. They're really fast paced things, they're you know in and out, nothing overstays us, welcome. And for me, it was a pretty easy watch. Actually, I was afraid starting this that it'd be hard watching it a second time after watching it with you guys in order to take my show notes and everything. It was super easy. It was even more fun, actually, the second time. So (laughs) I was uh, really into this one. And of course, it's a huge, really important main event for the career of Sting, who's one of the most important wrestlers in WCW. So I I think it's a pretty easy one to recommend, in my opinion.
2: Yeah, you are mostly mirror my own thoughts. The... When they really try to be weird and gimmicky, it doesn't work. Even like the, let's put the guy in the cage so he can interfere, thing. it has very little impact on the match, thankfully. I didn't care for that. Yeah, it could, it could drop that entirely. So it's really when the, yeah. No, not on the people. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but no, oh I mean, yeah, when they're trying to be weird and gimmicky, like, won't well, be a recurring theme in these episodes, it's really when it doesn't work. It's when they're just relying on the talented people to put a match together, is when the shows work the best.
0: Yeah.
1: I actually liked revisiting. I probably should have watched it again in, in retrospect, but when you played some of the audio clips, I actually picked up on some things that I didn't get to hear or for whatever reason, you know, understand, like I didn't make the cookie monster association <laughs> until, uh, yeah, was if great. I had, it would have been much more amusing. Um, but yeah, the gimmicky stuff with the, the, the cage just did nothing for me. They did, If they had mic'd him or had some other interaction yeah. with him, other than oh, there's, there's, they're panning out, so I can't see what's happening. <laughs> that would have been nice. I did like the the level of energy for the six man, you know, free for all, two title named fight, yeah, if you want to call it.
0: Hullabaloo, um, the Chicago yeah. Texas Hullabaloo. <laughs> yes,
1: I, I mean I I like the randomness of that. Uh, Sting and Flair was probably my favorite match out of every uh, out of everything there, and other than the the appearance of the two by four, <laughs> which I, I you know got really excited about for some reason, <laughs> like I, I just thought something else was going to happen, and uh, no, it was just used once and kind of like tossed aside. Yeah, that was odd. The wardrobe was was on point the whole time. I was very happy to see like a not necessarily Golden Age, but you know I don't know the term, but it had a lot of weird nostalgia for for people I've never even met or even seen. Yeah, sure. I thought it was a
0: a good era,
1: and I think it was a good representation of of, a little bit of everything that WCW has to offer.
0: Yeah, this is a good show for showing both what's really, really good about WCW and what's really, really, not bad, but weird about WCW sometimes. off. They have really... Excellent wrestlers, some great matches, some some great concepts, and it's generally on the same show with some amazing weirdness or just weird screw-ups that are them messing up something that shouldn't be that hard. Unforced errors. You know, announcing the proper number of results from your judges should not be that complicated, but... It is for WCW for some mm-hmm. reason. Do
1: no, you think they're just half it, or
0: they're just are just disorganized? They, I think, are just generally fairly disorganized at times. And mm-hmm. this is, again, I've, I've listened to Tony Schiavone's podcast a fair bit, and one of the things he's fairly open on is there's a lot of cases in WCW where the right hand doesn't know what the left hand <laughs> is doing, and different people are in charge of different things and don't talk to each other. So it's entirely possible that one guy's writing the ballots for the judges that they're going to use in this, in this final announcement. And another guy has decided to insert two more judges. And no one has actually told anyone that there are, in fact, five judges sitting at the table now. <laughs> so I hope we find out there are last minute sponsors. Uh, yeah. That's what I really hope. It would make sense. Clash is a really good show. It has its moments of oddness. The promos are strangely disconnected from everything else on the, on the show. <laughs> But it's a really good one for me. It's one that, if you're a wrestling fan and you haven't seen this show, it's one to go out of your way to watch, I think. Before we wrap up, then, how about we choose our Match of the Night and MVP? So, Al, why don't you go first?
2: Yeah, it's a tough one. I mean, I'm kind of torn between the world tag match and the main event. I kind of lean slightly more in the favor of the main event, judges aside. I think that, as a overall experience, worked the most for me. MVP? Yeah, so again, it's a tricky one. I would probably go Sting just because he really had to prove himself, and he did. Because mm-hmm. by this point, Flair has been a big top guy here for like six, seven years almost. He's, you know, for in the Starcade we're going to watch next, that's his like real coronation as a top guy. And we're five years out from that. So yeah. He, he, has, he really just has to not screw up, and he doesn't. But Sting has to prove himself, and Nicky really does. Cool. John? Uh, match of the night and MVP. I'm just going to go for the,
1: the, the six-man chaotic brawl just for the match of the night, because there's, I haven't seen anything like it before.
0: Perfectly perfectly acceptable reason, yeah. yeah. that's fine.
1: <laughs> and, and I really want, to, for MVP, I kind of just want the game master. Or <laughs> Kevin <was> Sullivan. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to have to give it to Sting, just because, uh, like, like Al said, this is his first shot, you know, and I think he delivered really well, and um, I really can't really critique his his performance. I thought he did an exceptional job. Yeah, yeah. And I wish I was the third (laughs) judge,
0: Or the fourth or fifth. Well, for my match of the night, it's a draw. No. No. (laughs) No. (laughs) Every time! Um, No, my match of the night, yeah, I was, like you, Al, I was really, really torn between the Sting versus Flair and the Arn and Tully versus Luger and Wyndham. Really close call for me. The tag match is maybe maybe a little better worked overall. There's a couple things in the Sting and Flare match that I can notice as signs that Sting is still kind of new or that they flub something a little bit here and there or go to repeat a spot here and there. So, so maybe the tag match is a little better worked or maybe just faster paced so it's a little easier for it to constantly maintain that energy. But at the same time, even though the Sting versus Flair one is a long match, it never loses me. It never no. lost me one bit. I'm into it the entire time. It's really easy to get behind Sting. And even now, he's already doing such a great job keeping the crowd with him. So, yeah, ultimately, with that and just the raw importance of this moment for Sting, it's Sting versus Flair for me. Sting versus Flair is a contest that had to be epic. And it was. And for my MVP, yeah, I'm going to go with you guys. It's Sting. I mean, like you said, Flair has to be good for this match, but Flair's established we know he's good. He can do this. He's not—it doesn't feel like he's got all the pressure on him or anything. He's he's there to be the dependable one that, that Sting can lean on a little bit. But Sting has to prove himself here. He has to be at his best. He has to prove that he can hang at this level— and he does. He absolutely just nails that match, has the crowd eating out of his hand, and gets terrific reactions and does everything he has to do to get terrific reactions. So, yeah, there's some really exceptional performances on the card that I could mention. You know, there's Flair, of course we shouldn't discount. No. Um, Arn and Tully are terrific in their tag match. Luger, honestly, I was totally sold on in this match. If this was the only Lex Luger thing that I had ever seen, I would be like, Oh my gosh, this guy's one of the best performers out there, honestly. Yeah. He's really good tonight. But um the it's Sting. Sting has to be great tonight and he is great tonight. I'd like to see more of the two by four. <laughs> All
2: right. You will get your your wish it's Starcade ninety four.
0: <laughs> yep. Well that'll do it for our review of Clash of the Champions one. I hope you've had fun listening to us, and if the show sounds interesting, you can find it along with most of the rest of WCW shows on the WWE Network. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance figures and TV ratings. We'll be back next time to cover the first ever Starcade from 1983 under Jim Crockett Promotions and the NWA. This is Bob Moore for John Mullins and Alec Bridget, signing off. Good night, everybody. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed this look back at our beginnings, and I hope that you'll join us for our next episode, Bunkhouse Stampede 88. Look forward to it coming in June.